Hello and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and of course, today we are brought to you by none other than the Film Yap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all things film, because as you know, they never shut up about movies over there. Um, you can definitely keep up with us on social media, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. Search it, search it and you'll find us. And then uh, at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter, you can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please come hang out with us. We're going to have some awesome stuff coming up. And I know I say that every time. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing. So uh, next week, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Jeff Rhoda, who uh, you guys probably heard about fi- our little 15-minute conversation we had with him. I have way more that I want to talk with him about, so we're just going to kind of shoot the shit for about an hour, um, and it's going to be really cool. Check that out. He's a cool dude, and um, you know I have faith in uh, our conversation skills. We'll, we'll have something entertaining for you. Uh, and that's next week. The following week is December 8th. That's when the next episode will come out. So Jeff wrote his December 1st, December 8th, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, December uh, 8th is the day that we are going to celebrate John Cassavetti's birthday. John Cassavetti's, for those who don't know, is kind of the grandfather of independent cinema, and he is uh, one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, and he is uh, a real class act, does really very, very human and heartfelt movies. Now, not heartfelt in like um, a, a Oscar bait way. I mean, like, they're so human it hurts. Um, all of his characters are usually drunk and just like dealing with shit that's really painful. I mean, you know, it's, it's always uh, usually a bummer, but I, I really, really adore his movies because I feel like they get uh, at the core of humanity in a way that no one else does can do. I mean, he's a real unique filmmaker, and a lot of people have been influenced by him since. He died in 1989, unfortunately, but we're going to celebrate by starting our very first movie marathon, and we're going to start doing um, uh, movie marathons. This was first inspired whenever years and years ago, I I remember seeing uh, the Criterion Collection was putting out these box sets, and I remember one of the box sets was for like the the five, the John Cassavetti's five films. It was five movies that were uh, in this box set. And then uh, they did one for Jacques Demy, and there were five films, and they did one for Jacques Tati, and I believe there are five films in that one as well. And I thought, wow, five is a great number. Like, if I ever do a podcast, because if you remember from the first episode, I was, wanted to do this back in like 2010 or 11. So this uh, took almost a decade. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I was even thinking about it back then, and I was just like, man, five films would be awesome. You could either pick five movies that are really similar uh, you know, by a filmmaker. So you might have something like Woody Allen, where you do, you know, Annie Hall, Manhattan, Stardust Memories, Broadway, Danny Rose, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and, you know, Hannah and Her Sisters or something, you know, and, and that would really show what the auteur could, you know, what they what they kind of uh, excel at. But then, you know, you could also do something like, you know, Bananas, Annie Hall, Zelig, uh, uh, Interiors, um, you know, Shadows and Fog, Deconstructing Harry, Match Point. Like, you know, you could do all these kind of random kind of ones that, that uh, Woody Allen did. And I just thought, man, what, how cool would it be if you could do five films and blah, blah, blah. I'm talking too long about this. You get the point. The point is this. So I wanted to do these movie marathons. And then there's a, another podcast. We are not associated by any means with them, though I love them and adore them. And if you ever listen to this, uh, either of the hosts, please 
you know, we should talk movies sometime. I, I, I love your show. Uh, but the podcast is called Film Spotting, and uh, they started doing these movie marathons. And uh, over the course of the pandemic uh, and the shutdowns, uh, they've been doing a lot more of the marathons, kind of on a weekly basis, it seems, pretty often. And, uh, you know, they started doing it, but they were, you know, they started off doing around like, you know, four to six, it seemed. So right around that five number. Uh, but then they lately they've been doing like eight films from 1984, eight films by this filmmaker or, or you know, um, unknown filmmakers or whatever, you know, or, or underappreciated, whatever, whatever, you know, the, the subject. But they're doing like eight movies now. And that got me hyped because I was like, I'm stealing that. Uh, so, uh, go check out film spotting. Again, we have no association with them. We're not being paid for that, but I just really love them and want to support them. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I don't know why I'm rambling. I just ate Taco Bell and drank like a full glass of eggnog. <laughs> I would not advise anyone do that. My brain's kind of going wild. I feel like I'm simultaneously going to like vomit and I'm kind of like really happy about it. I don't know. It's very strange. Please bear with me. I'm having a great time right now. Anyways, so we're going to be doing these movie marathons. I'm actually putting a bunch of them together now. Uh, and I, I, there are so many filmmakers that I want to cover and, and film movements like the French New Wave, New German Cinema, you know, New South Korean, uh, New Korean Cinema, uh, you know, it, it, all kinds of stuff. The, the new Hollywood movement. Uh, there, there are so many different kind of movements or stages, but then there are also genres, you know, like the the American Western during the Western, the American Western during the production code. So anything from 1934 to 1966 ish, uh, any of the Westerns in that time, I would love to do that. And if you're not a fan of Westerns, please don't throw the, you know, uh, the baby out with the bathwater. There are good ones in there, even if you don't like the John Wayne, John Ford you know, uh, Westerns and things like that. There are also these cool B-Westerns that do shit you've never seen. So I want to cover stuff like that, you know, film noir, um, you know, we might even do comedies from a certain era, uh, things like that. It would just be really fun. So, um, you know, I'm working on that right now, and hopefully we'll get that set up. But John Cassavetes is the first one we're doing. Is the whole point of this rambled about all that in my uh, Taco Bell eggnog ramble. Um, but there's... Uh, there's something about his films. I'm very excited to tackle them. We're going to be doing uh, what I have planned so far is uh, on the eighth. We're going to be doing covering faces and husbands, uh, the first two movies in the John Cassavetes marathon, and then we're going to also be covering eventually um, a woman under the influence, uh, the killing of a Chinese bookie, opening night, and love streams. Um, and I talked about Love Streams a little bit in the last episode because we did our favorite top five favorite movies from 1984, and Love Streams came out in 1984. So pretty much everything from 1968 to 1984 we have covered. There are a couple of movies in there that we're not doing, but uh, you know maybe we'll get to them eventually. Either way, that's what we're going to do now. Here's here's the kicker. All right. Uh, you know, Joe is, and the film app are really doing their end of year, you know, award season stuff right now. He's really stacked with a lot of stuff. So I decided next week I'm doing the Jeff Rhoda, uh, interview solo, just, just Jeff and I, and then I'm going to be bringing in my friend. He's a graduate from the American Film Institute, AFI. He's a screenwriter in LA and, and also living that feast and famine lifestyle. His name is Jake Bottolieri. And I am currently planning on having him on December 8th because he's a big fan of Cassavetes. And, uh, you know, we went to school together 
And we used to go to this film class and we'd sit in the front row and I would always just like happen to sit next to him. We just always sat in the same place and eventually he leaned over and started talking to me. And, um, you know, I, I felt an immediate kinship with Jake because every time our teacher would say, so who's seen Citizen Kane? Who's seen, you know, Breathless, you know, or, or the 400 Blows? Or who's seen, you know, uh, this silent film or, or, or this, you know, German film or like whatever. No matter what it was, Jake and I's hand went up seemed like every time, even when no one else in the room's hands would go up. So we kind of built this friendship around just being like uh, essentially teacher's pets because we'd taken the time to watch a bunch of shit, you know? I just burped. Anyways, that tastes... Okay. (laughs) If you drink eggnog and eat Taco Bell, don't like blow the burp out <laughs> immediately okay that was awful anyway so um man today is wild Ooh. all right so uh but jake's jake's a great dude and um we're gonna have him on uh the plan is also the following week which i believe is the 14th i'm checking now i gotta make sure i have that in front of me um uh no the 15th my bad uh so december 15th i plan to have uh my friend greg bennick on he is a uh he produced he was one of the producers on holding these moments which is a documentary covered in our first bonus content as well as our second episode um we also uh he's also uh produced other films but he's most known probably for his uh, his role in the band Trial from the 90s, their 90s hardcore band, and uh, he was the vocalist, and they were a pretty big deal, at least to, to us hardcore kids, and uh, I met him when my band played with him when he was doing this kind of spoken word. Um, it was like really truthful and really progressive, but it was also kind of like, um, I don't know, it just made you feel good. Like when you listen to him, it just makes you feel good. Um, so, uh, I'll tell you this, no one is more fun to listen to than Greg Bennett. He can just talk for days and I'd be happy. Um, but I, I have the privilege of talking to him. It may end up being like two parts because man, uh, he's ready to talk about movies, but we're also probably going to get into a little bit about politics and hardcore and, uh, all kinds of stuff, but movies will be there. And we're going to be talking about some fun stuff. So we have a lot of stuff coming up is what I'm getting at. Uh, the movie marathons I'm really excited about, though, and we'll probably, back to social media, be posting stuff on there, especially Twitter, doing um, polls and whatnot. And even if you don't have Twitter, check out our Instagram and Facebook, and I'll probably post something on there that you can just comment and tell me which ones you like. The polls are usually easier, um, but yeah, I definitely check all of those comments and everything. So please let us know what you want to see. If there's a filmmaker that you already know of, even if you haven't heard me talk about different filmmakers we're considering, if there's someone you want us to talk about, definitely let us know. We would love to hear what you want to hear. So um, with all that said, uh, today, though, I've talked a lot about the future here, but today, um, because we're having Jeff Rota on next week, his film 18 to Party is set in 1984. So we decided, hey, why don't we just set that up and talk about our favorite movies from 1984. So we have a top five list here for you. And uh, top five favorite movies from 1984. 1984 is a phenomenal year, which we'll get into so many great movies. And I hope you enjoy. If you agree or disagree with our choices, hey, shoot us a, a tweet. I'm at Austin Glidden, or you can, you know, uh, hit us up at Medium Cool, or you can get on Instagram, Medium Cool Pod. 
Um, I just said a wrong Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. My bad. Um, you can email us. You can Facebook. Whatever. But like, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear what your favorite film of 1984 was. All that said, we had a, a good friend of Joe and I's. He's a critic that used to be a film yapper. Now he is at the Midwest Film Journal. His name is Sam Watermeyer, and he'll be on here at some point, I'm sure, hanging out with us and talking movies. And he wanted to share his favorite film of 1984, and I'm going to go ahead and let him transition us into our conversation about the top five favorite films of 1984. Hey, this is Sam the Movie Man Watermeyer. Uh, my favorite film was 1984. Uh, my head says Amadeus, but my heart says A Nightmare on Elm Street. I actually got to interview uh, Heather Langenkamp, who plays uh, Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and she told me that during a convention, a woman in a wheelchair approached her and told her that she watched A Nightmare on Elm Street every day while recovering from the car accident that paralyzed her. And watching someone triumph over a nightmarish situation on screen helped her overcome her own. And I had never thought about horror films being therapeutic before then, but uh, Freddy Krueger is uh, kind of a fucked up therapist in a way. He holds a funhouse mirror up to teens' everyday fears. So, gotta go with that one. Going with my heart. Joe, you were so you were just telling me about all of the notable filmmakers uh, from 1984, which is kind of the subject we're going to be touching on today. And yeah. tell us a little bit about that, Joe. <laughs> yeah, so I yeah, so um, you know we're we're doing our top five of 1984, and you know why did we pick 1984? Because it's awesome. Um, it's a, it's a great year for movies, uh, and I, you know I actually did a podcast about this years ago with um, with my film yet partner Chris Lloyd. And I think we um, called it maybe the best year for movies ever. Uh, if I if I remember, it was, you know, it was you know eighty four. I'll say this: I, I've if you Google nineteen eighty four in movies, there are yeah. articles that say that that are not anything you guys did. So you guys are on that right. bandwagon. My yeah. year, and we need to do this year sometime. This we might have to do a fucking top ten, dude, for yeah. two thousand seven, uh-huh. because I think that was the last like. The last 1984. You know, I mean, I mean yeah. that, that's no country for old men. You um, know, Gone Baby Gone. There will be blood before the mm-hmm. devil knows you're dead. Zodiac. Like you could go on. Yeah. I can't even do a top ten for that because there's so right, many yeah. good ones. But anyways, yeah. no, you're spot on. I, I want to yeah. say that, um, and I've already said this in the intro, but like huh. the the reason I came up with this because originally we had an interview planned for this week and it didn't go through, mm-hmm. so we were coming up with something. And I know that next week I'm interviewing Jeff Rhoda for an extended uh-huh. interview, and his movie 18 to Party uh, is uh-huh. takes place in 1984, which is what yeah. started this. But then as you and I were looking through it, we were texting each other like, mm-hmm. holy shit, this is a yeah. phenomenal year, man. And it was yeah. really difficult. Yeah. So I've watched My- several movies even since last night. You know what I mean? But go ahead, Joe. So yeah, yeah no, one yeah, of the no, great I, years. I was, yeah, I was just going to say my my top five is 15 deep, you know? 
and I, I'm and I'm I'm actually just looking at my notes while we're you know while I'm sitting here talking. I'm going, man. I really wish I would have been able to include that on this list. I wish I would have been able to include that on this list. Oh yeah. And, I feel um, like our honorable mentions will be quite time consuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I might just have to be a you know one, two, three, four, five. Here they are, and not even talk about them. But yeah, um, yeah. There's man. There's so many, and I I had my five and. Um, and I was all set and, and I put my, my notebook away for a minute and then I opened it back up and looked at it and I was like, Oh no, this movie has to be in there too. Yep. And so I had to, you know, re relist it, you know, I had to cross a couple out and refill them in. I did the same thing. Um, may, maybe after we're done, I can read some of these names of, these are just the people who did not make my top five. So maybe we, you know, maybe we can do that after. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah don't give of, it away. Yeah. Cause yeah. yeah Cause yeah, you might it might is a kind of in a de facto way give away a couple of my picks, but yeah, definitely, yeah. So we'll cover that for sure. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I'm I have my list pulled up. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have really any criteria other than it coming out in 1984. I take it that's probably where you were as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I I basically just looked up 1984 movies and and just kind of went through the list and and just started you know paring down. Um, from that larger list into a, a smaller list. And then my smaller list, I cried as I finally chose my top five. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, I honestly, go ahead, go ahead, finish. Uh, well, and, and I might not have a number one so much as I have a number one A and one B. Um, you cheater. It's, it's really, yeah, it's really tough for me to, between my two, my top two to, to pick. And really even oh. the top three, I would even be like, geez, I mean, uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty tough. Oh my god. Okay, so uh, we can't stress enough how big this year was, and we will yeah. uh, we'll we'll bring a little bit up of of that at the end, um, so that we don't spoil any of our picks here. Uh, mm-hmm. But as always, Joe, um, I still consider you my guest, even though you are essentially an adopted co-host here. But um, why don't you go ahead and start with your number five? Let's go ahead and just jump right. into it. Sure, sure, yeah, um, yeah. So, so my number, my number five. Um, again by a hair over what 11 other movies um or 11 uh, yeah 11 other movies um is footloose um uh, so <laughs> directed by herbert ross um starring kevin bacon it, it, intro- it more or less introduced kevin bacon to the world uh, i know he was in friday the 13th before this and probably a couple other movies but this was his big headliner movie um it is pure 80s cheese but i love every bit of it 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 has a, a surprising amount of um heart to it to be honest and um, john lithgow plays reverend shaw moore who's essentially the villain as a villain he's very complex he's not he a role like this could have very easily have been your typical mustache twirling you know uh <laughs> you know religious fanatic and he is certainly not that um there's there's a lot of things going on. If you're not familiar with this, why not? But here I'll tell you very briefly. <laughs> and this is not uh, the movie that came out a few years ago. Okay, this is 1984. All right, this yes, is the original yes. Footloose. Go ahead, Joe. This is the this is OG Footloose, <laughs> where a a big city teenager um, named Ren McCormick uh, moves to a small town where they have banned rock music and dancing, which happened to be his two favorite things in the world because it was the eighties and that was everything's everybody's favorite thing in the world. And, uh, he kind of at first has to dance in secret 
And then um, as he makes friends and meets people who, you know, kind of lament this fact, he just decides, hey, let's do a dance. And all of the the adults in the room uh, start immediately start crying and screaming and and stay away from that Ren. So he's a uh, he's a troublemaker. There's uh, a lot of really great people in it. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker in one of her early roles. Um, of course, I mentioned um, Kevin Bacon and John Lithgow. Laurie Singer plays Ariel, the preacher's daughter. Diane Weist is in it. Um, and Chris Penn, uh, I believe he is Sean's brother. Yep. Um, the, the late Chris Penn, um, who um, a little more or some more modern audiences might know him from Reservoir Dogs. Um, and, you know, a, a group of other people, largely people you don't recognize. My other notable um from this is Frances Lee McCain, who I also know from Gremlins, a movie that came out the same year. Um, she played um, Billy's mom in that movie. Here she plays Ren's mom. So um, it's a it's a pretty it was a pretty interesting year for her. And this is uh, again a movie I didn't see as a kid so much as I did when I was an adult, and I just loved it on so many levels. So uh, yeah, that that's what makes it my number five is. Uh, is all of that fun mixed with a great performance from John Lithgow and Kevin Bacon being the coolest dude in the world with a, let me just say a distinctive walk. (laughs) (laughs) He has a very distinctive strut when he walks that he's carried throughout. And I, I don't know if that's a natural thing, but, um, or if he picked it up here, but it it pretty much goes through most of the movies he's been in his whole career. So if, if you've never noticed the way he walks, watch this movie and, and see how pronounced it is and then watch it and, and, or never be able to unsee it in every other movie he's ever made. <laughs> yeah. You know, you bring up Chris Penn and I yeah. have to say, uh, what an underrated actor in my view. Yeah. I think yeah. he's so great. And I mean, I, I think, you know, chief among them is reservoir dogs performance of course is really phenomenal, mm-hmm. but I've never seen him in something that I didn't yeah. think he was awesome in. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And including this and, um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, of course, like you said, John Lithgow, um, really great. Kind of a side tangent real quick from a few years prior, I think three years prior. Did you ever see uh, Blowout, the Brian De Palma film? I did not. No, I've not oh, seen it. Oh, wow. Okay. So real, real quick, tangent on a tangent, okay? Side note here. Uh, um, I'm declaring now, Joe, we're going to have an episode where we do two movies for the whole episode. Uh, you pick one I haven't seen. Okay, and I pick one you haven't seen so Uh that we both see something new and then we can like discuss it from there. Is that a deal? I'm in. I'm in because Blowout is phenomenal and Uh it's a really great. I love how I'm talking about this. This isn't even 1984, but just real quick. John Travolta and my favorite role he ever did. Okay, Uh, I love him in Pulp Fiction, too, but still so good. Young John Travolta. But John Lithgow plays a villain in it. And I think Lithgow's such he's great at comedy. He's uh, great at being like heartwarming, but he's also yeah. like so good at being a bad guy. Like what yeah. a great talent. So that's the only reason I bring all that up is huh? he is such he's, a great talent. He's also a terrific bad guy in a movie called Ricochet that came out in I think 91. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, opposite Denzel Washington. And there's there's a scene where have you seen uh, Ricochet? Um, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I don't remember if I've seen the whole thing. If I have, it's been on TV. Yeah, there, it's 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 kind of a, it's one of those like super cheesy, you know, action movies. But he plays a bad guy, and there's a scene where he's in prison, and he has a fight with Jesse Ventura, 
<laughs> where where they strap on phone books as like armor and he kicks the crap out of Jesse Ventura. And it's like it's the most like unrealistic thing you've ever seen. But it's but it's hilarious and and it's it's a terrific movie. It's it's a it's a great it's a great slice of cheese, as as we yeah. might say. I, I, um, I, I all I'm hearing is listeners go go YouTube, uh, uh-huh. ricochet phone book fight. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. and I'm yeah. sure that's gonna pop up. But anyways, maybe, yeah, maybe prison scene might be the the way to say. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably yeah. better. But um, you uh-huh. know, uh, anyways, back to 1984 though. Um, yeah. yeah, Footloose is uh, a, a good choice. It's been a very very long time since uh-huh. I've seen that. I'm pretty sure my wife's a big fan, so maybe she and I. Uh, we'll be able to sit down and watch that together. Uh, yeah. It's been a very long time. I'm going to go ahead and move on to my top five or my top five. I'm going to do them all. Uh, no, my number five. Uh, this filmmaker, though, has had a problematic personal life, um, but is still one of my all time filmmakers. Whenever you look at it as personal life separated from art. Uh, but that is uh, Woody Allen and his movie Broadway, Danny Rose, from 1984, as we've already said. This is starring Woody Allen, Mia Farrow, and Nick Apolloforte. It also has uh, some scenes with Milton Berle, which is uh, really great. And there's a whole ton of other people that I guarantee most people wouldn't know their names. But you'd recognize their faces, especially if you're a fan of Woody Allen's work, because he tends to use a lot of the same actors also. Uh, The synopsis is essentially a hapless talent manager named Danny Rose, played by Woody Allen, um, by helping a client gets dragged into a love triangle involving the mob. His story is told in flashback. It's basically an anecdote shared amongst a group of comedians uh, over lunch at New York's Carnegie Deli. And Rose's one-man talent agency represents countless incompetent entertainers, including a one-legged tap dancer uh, and one slightly talented one a washed-up lounge singer named Lou Canova, played by Forte, whose career is on the rebound. This movie had a budget of $8 million, box office $10.6 million. So um, it's barely a success by what we would look at by numbers, but for Woody Allen, a lot of his movies, and including a lot of his great movies, were only minor successes, right? But it kept him working every year for like 40 years. I mean, longer than that, but I'm just saying in terms of being kind of who he is today. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so Barely a Success, it got nominated for Oscars and Best Director and Best Original Screenplay categories, as well as other awards, you know, with uh, the Golden Globes, BAFTA, all kinds of stuff. It's a black and white film, which is not unusual for Alan. Uh, Of course, he had uh, Manhattan, Stardust Memories, Zelig, and Shadows and Fog in black and white as well. He might have had a couple of others, but I'm probably forgetting them. Uh, But it's this awesome black and white movie um, with uh, Mia Farrow, who plays kind of like almost like a femme fatale of sorts. (laughs) She's the the, uh, other woman. She's the third woman in the – or like the, the, the female in the triangle, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. in the love triangle, and she is awesome in this. Uh, she was definitely praised for her performance, and it, it's at times it's very over the top, and at uh, in other times it is uh, a like sincerely good performance, which actually makes the over the top times like funnier, um, because you can tell that she genuinely is a really good performer. Um, but then you see her in these series, or uh, then you see her in these funny moments, kind of over the top, and it's great. Uh, you know, uh, Gordon Willis did the cinematography as he did with numerous other Allens uh, of Allens movies. 
Uh, he also did, as I mentioned in another episode, he did The Godfather and All the President's Men. So when we talked about our political movies, same guy did the cinematography there. So it is, it's beautiful black and white photography. And um, most recently, a company called Twilight Time released a really simple limited edition Blu-ray. Um, do you know what Twilight Time is, Joe? Are you familiar with Twilight Time? No, I've not heard of that. Uh, Twilight Time is essentially a distribution company that puts out a lot of like uh, um, underrated or like lower end or unreleased movies, and they only do limited edition runs. So the uh, I have a copy of this Broadway Danny Rose version, but uh, there are like no supplements or anything, and it's like twenty bucks or something like that, you know. But there only three thousand copies were made. So wow. if, if it sells out real quick, sometimes they'll do a second run, but usually that's it, and then it's out of print. So it's a really cool site. So uh, I think they probably still have some Broadway Danny Rose copies, um, but I strongly encourage people to go check that out. Um, just by chance, have you seen Broadway Danny Rose? I have not seen this, no, yeah. Woody Allen, is. I've, I've seen a few of his more recent movies. Uh, of course, I've seen Annie Hall. I've seen a couple of the older ones. Um, but um, most of these ones in the middle, I haven't gotten to. Yeah, um, yeah. you know some some of his, you know, the, his three or four essentials, and then uh, most of his newer ones I've seen. But yeah, not this one. Yeah, well, I, I'll say this: from 1977 to about 1992, um, I, I would personally, I would say, I think he had a couple of kind of stinkers in there. Uh-huh. Um, but other than that, they're all brilliant. We're talking about mm-hmm. Annie Hall. Uh, you know, he had Manhattan. He had Stardust Memories. He had Broadway Danny Rose. I'm not even looking at it. I just know these because I love Woody Allen so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, he had Zelig, which is like a really awesome. Uh, it looks like it's made up of of all like uh, uh, TV reel footage, mm-hmm. like newsreel footage. Uh, he did Hannah and her sisters, husbands and wives. Uh, so, I mean, just just brilliant. In the 90s, he had quite a few stinkers. But the thing about Woody Allen is if you like Woody Allen, okay, it's kind of like Larry David. If you mm-hmm. like Larry David, Anything he does, even if it's not really that good, will be entertaining. And Woody Allen, anything Woody Allen does, if Woody Allen's in it, I will laugh. There's like it's it. Well, it will just happen because I love his I love his humor and I love his delivery. Like how just he's like this neurotic, you know, (laughs) um, (laughs) what's the what's the word whenever you think you're sick all the time? Um, Hypochondriac. Yeah, yeah. He's like this neurotic hypochondriac who's like constantly terrified of God, but also is an atheist. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he's just like a really, really ridiculous human. And I love him in all of these, you know, there's um, a movie, I think it's 1993 or four called Manhattan murder mystery that he did. Um, And it's like not a great film, but man, what a treat though. It's just like a fun movie. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I I love Woody Allen. This is another one kind of like Scorsese, as I mentioned last time, where I went through the entire filmography. I'm still missing a handful. But again, he's made more than 50 movies now or something directed. Like it's so many. And I think I'm only shy like between like five and seven movies I haven't seen. So I've like I've cleared a lot of it. And and most of his stuff that I haven't seen is either really early or more recent. Um, yeah. but anyways, uh, long story short with that Broadway, Danny Rose is among that, uh, that group of just really priceless movies from 77 to 92. And, uh, and, uh, it's just, it's just him at his best. Uh, I mean, Annie Hall is just like a, a pinnacle film for me, but Broadway, mm-hmm. Danny Rose continues in that kind of humor. And again, you know, it has the mob, so it gets pretty ridiculous and they're like chase scenes in it and stuff, but it's in a, it's in a very silly kind of funny way. Mm-hmm. And in the way that I would say Alan probably does it best, he's able to use his humor but still get at deeper human 
human concerns and values and feelings and you know um you know and, and, and as an example in Annie Hall he he tells the story of the shark you know uh, relating it to his relationship with Diane Keaton in the movie mm-hmm. and talking about you know if a shark stops moving it dies and i think what we have in our hands now is a dead shark right yes. that is like right. it's a joke but what mm-hmm. it's cloaking is a real truth you know what i mean like i feel yeah. like we've all probably been uh involved with a dead shark you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yes. Um, and so yeah. I love the way he writes um, the, the end of uh, Annie Hall, even whenever he talks about uh, the brother who goes into the doctor and thinks he's a chicken or whatever, like that whole, that whole thing t- makes me tear up when I watch it. And it's like a joke, <laughs> but it's like, I find it yeah. so meaningful. And I'm only, I feel like I'm like broadly talking about Broadway, Danny Rose here. My point is all these things I'm talking about, Woody Allen are found here. And um, when I was looking up the best movies of 1984 to kind of remind myself of all the titles so I didn't overlook something, I didn't even see this. I saw Mm -hmm. this whenever I looked up an article on underrated 1984 movies, and this was (laughs) one of them. And I was like, oh, my God, I thought this was the year before. Holy crap. Um, So I was like a year off in my brain. Uh, But anyways, my my number five is uh, Woody Allen's Broadway, Danny Rose. Uh, Strongly encourage you to check it out. Listeners and Joe, um, it's it's a really fun time. And I can't wait for this whole pandemic to chill out because then we're going to have to have regular meetups at some point. So I can just loan you like a stack of 10 movies and be like, all right, you have two weeks. Uh, (laughs) Um, But anyways, anyways, Broadway, Danny Rose, that's my number five. Moving on to number four, Joe. 1984, nope. what's your number four? Number four. Uh, in any other year, this would be top two. And as a franchise, anyway, this is one of the formative franchises of my life. This is one of the movies that uh, this and, and its sequel, uh, which came out a couple of years later, are two of the kind of the foundational films of, of my life Like that, you know, kind of first inspired me even to love film. So, uh, so th- this one is directed by John G. Avildsen. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you some of the details if you haven't guessed it by now um, uh, leading up to revealing what it is. Um, some of those details that, that you um, have been adding. It had a budget of $8 million, brought in $91 million. Um, this was an under-the-radar movie they didn't expect to be a hit. And it stars a, a gentleman named Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita. It's The Karate Kid. <laughs> and it is it is absolutely one of my favorite movies. Um, the Karate Kid Part 2, I am one of the rare people who thinks it may be better than the first one. Uh, most people consider it a step down for some reason, but The Karate Kid Part 2 remains to me one of the most entertaining movies ever. Um, I, I even have watched that um, fairly recently. I even watched The Karate Kid Part 3 and enjoy that. I've even, I, I just watched that actually a couple of weeks ago, and... As I was watching, I'm going, why? Why do people dislike this movie so much? Like, I I get that you know Ralph Macchio is like legit thirty and he's still playing like maybe like <laughs> nineteen or twenty, but I'm like, you know, he's got like a double chin, you know, and I'm like, I get that at least, but the movie itself is, you know, they're they're all more or less, you know, they're all more or less copies of each other, but, um, you know, they, they do a lot enough of advancing the story to, to keep it entertaining. Now the next karate kid with Hillary Swank, eh, not so much maybe, but, um, but certainly Cobra Kai, the, the series that's out now. Um, I've enjoyed that. Um, after the, the first half of that was, I thought was ridiculously bad. Um, but since then I thought it's been pretty, it's been pretty good. Um, they, they kind of, they lost 
the you know they tr- stopped trying to make it a comedy. So, um, but yeah, this again, if if you don't know, you probably should. Um, it's one of the iconic movies of the eighties. Um, a a uh, New Jersey kid of about fifteen or sixteen moves to uh, California and quickly finds that there some of the some of the laid back Californians are not so laid back, and uh, specifically this uh, gang of kids who teach or who uh, are being taught karate at a dojo called Cobra Kai. And they proceed to make um, this young man, Daniel LaRusso, their punching bag, um, largely because, you know, he was hitting on one of their girlfriends at, on the beach. So, you know, they, of course, today they have, um, there are kind of these alternate takes on the movie that, uh, that Johnny, the villain in this movie is actually the hero who was the, actually the wronged party. But Ali has clearly Ali played by Elizabeth Shue. Uh, this is one of her um, first roles. Um, she clearly has broken up with him. She has clearly told him he is his services are no longer required. So she is a legit <laughs> free agent, regardless of what he wants. So um, I, I don't buy into that particular theory. Uh, anyway, uh, he uh, Daniel, after getting the crap kicked out of him a couple of times, I uh, got ran off the road in. I don't know. They just basically beat him down. Uh, he finds his uh, local handyman uh, in his apartment building, who is a, an Asian gentleman, an elderly gentleman, who um, is also a karate master, who teaches him how to uh, fight back uh, with with um, with the appropriate lessons that karate is for defense only, unless you're in a tournament, and then you know go on ahead and and kick the dude in the face. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, um, it's the, uh, the, the thing that, that sticks out for me in this is, is that, that ethical concern. And that really, to me, comes to light more in the second movie, um, where the stakes are raised, but, um, you know, it's that, that ethical thing of, you know, don't, you don't just go beat somebody up because you can, uh, or, you know, even because they've beaten you up in the past, you only, you only fight to defend yourself. And, uh, he does. Uh, they they do a great job of punching that home as as kind of the the central theme of the film of the of the whole franchise. Um, and again, there's some '80s corniness to it. Uh, Banana Rama's on the soundtrack, uh, and we didn't even mention the soundtrack for Footloose, which is one of the all time greats, by the way. Um, but yeah, this, and this has um, a great. There's a a great song um, in the uh, the montage for the tournament toward the end. So. Um, yeah, everything in the '80s is music, as as I said before, um, even the karate. So, um, the Karate Kid number four, gr- begrudgingly, um, it should be a little higher, but I I just can't put my three ahead of that. I just can't push them any lower either. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Karate Kid number four. I you know I I have seen this movie so many times. Uh-huh. And you know what? Like growing up, and I can, I haven't seen the second or third one, probably all of them, but I know I've seen uh-huh. one more recently. But uh, the second and third one I haven't seen since I was probably a teenager at the latest. Uh-huh. And um, I always, you know, and you might disagree with me here, but w- with like Back to the Future, the one I've seen the most of that trilogy, uh-huh. that original trilogy, is uh, is three. Because it was on TV so much that yeah. I saw Back to the Future three more than anything else because I didn't own them for years. And yeah, then, yeah. you know, then I've seen one the most and two the least, yeah. but like three, I've seen more than any of the others. Again, it was the TV version, but still 
So yeah. like when people hate on Back to the Future 3, I'm like, yeah, it's not a great movie. Like I'm yeah. not trying to say it is, uh-huh. but like I find entertainment in it and I like yeah. watching it with my daughter who liked it and yeah. I don't like throw it away. And, and I feel like Karate Kid 3 in my memory is uh-huh. like that too, where it's like, don't like, it's not worthless. It just might not be as good as these other yeah. movies, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can it's, talk- it's funny you mentioned that because for me, Back to the Future, the, and there's, and there's a, um, there's a, of course, there's a meme for everything, but there's a meme that has been around for a long time on social media where it talks about um, franchises, like the quality of the films. And, um, you know, and, you know, and of course, for most of them, it's like the first one is very good. And then the second one is, you know, is of lower quality and then the third one is of usually of far, far, you know, lesser quality. But, but for me, Back to the Future is is three there are three separate very different films but they're all they're all very entertaining to me um uh, and it's it's probably a, a really good analogy to this one that um i i don't consider i'm consider the the third one certainly a step down but not nearly as much as most people do um it, i certainly don't see it as unwatchable and there's a couple of just really fun things that happen in it um and, and some of them in a very corny way, but um, yeah, the first two of these to me are are outstanding. Yeah, um, and I would say the same thing for Back to the Future. Yeah, I'll I'll say with uh, with the Karate Kid, I remember having a huge crush on Elizabeth Shue when I was when I was like uh, just uh-huh. a preteen. That was a yeah. big deal. And um, as most you know preteen kids who saw that movie, I did the mm-hmm. classic uh, Karate Kid mm-hmm. like jump kick. Yeah, uh, like the, the crane. crane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I did that like a million times on everything soft that I could kick. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and and at people without kicking them. Um, yeah, I mean uh-huh. it was it was like a formative, you know, mm-hmm. it was like that and Back to the Future and the you know Ninja Turtles movie. Like for me, like these were <laughs> yes, yeah. these were all very formative. So I think that's an awesome pick. That's uh, yeah. Joe's number four, The Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I don't have a whole lot more to, to add than what you said. I think you covered it. Uh, and yeah. I haven't seen him in so long. I feel like anything I have in my... I just remember thinking Elizabeth Shue was hot and <laughs> Ralph Macchio was cool. Like, uh-huh. and, and the bad guy. Like, I actually love the... Uh, the uh, Remind me of the guy's name who uh, runs the Cobra Kai Dojo. Oh, yeah. that's Crease uh, is his character name played by Martin Cove. Yeah. Yeah. Martin yeah. Cove rules, dude. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That guy. Yeah. That guy's cool. Um, again, what again? If we go to the third one, what he does, bringing him back for the third movie and having him, um, having you know, having him as kind of the the bad guy with his buddy, the uh, the rich industrialist, is to me is hilarious. And the way that they just continually troll Daniel in that movie just cracks me up. So <laughs> you know, that to me, that's that's what gets funny is that you know he brings his buddy in, and uh, he tells um, he tells his buddy to. You know, they, they come up with this plot to just kick the crap out of him, you know, and he increases like make his knuckles bleed. And he yeah. because, of course, that's what happens at the beginning of the second film is that uh, Mr. Miyagi in their fight makes him punch through two car windows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We're going to move on. That's that's the karate kid. That's uh, Joe's number four of 1984. Um, my number four. um for some reason, I, I tried to predict your number five, your your top five, and I didn't hold back on any of mine. I think ours will actually uh-huh. be more different than I initially expected. Um, but yeah. I have a feeling we're going to talk about this again. I don't know, but we'll uh-huh. see if I'm right because it's James Cameron's The Terminator. 
That is mm-hmm. my number four. Um, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda, Linda Hamilton, Michael Bain, I think is how you say Michael it. Michael Bain, yeah. Bain? Bain, I think okay. it's and uh, Paul Winfield. Uh, of course, there are a lot of other people in it. But um, the if Lance we, Hendrickson also. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And if if you don't know the Terminator, which as we've said every title, why? But if right. you haven't seen this movie, because I do, I do, I do know several people that have seen Judgment Day, the second one, uh-huh. but not this one, which blows my mind. I yeah. I, I get it because I know it was more popular. It came in what ninety two or three. Yeah. Um, but um, this is my favorite Terminator film. Like I actually like it more than Judgment Day, um, yeah. and it's uh, in a it's set in a post apocalyptic future, and mm-hmm. uh, where there are reigning tyrannical supercomputers uh, that teleport a cyborg assassin known as the Terminator back to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor, whose unborn mm-hmm. son is destined to lead insurgents against 21st century mechanical hegemony. Uh, meanwhile, the human resistance movement dispatches a lone warrior to safeguard Sarah. Can he stop the virtually instructable killing machine? That's my synopsis uh, stolen yeah. from uh, Letterbox. But the budget was $6.4 million and made a whopping $78.3 million. So, of course, yeah. uh, a huge success, as uh, even if you haven't seen it, you knew The Terminator was a success. Um, and, and, and my favorite thing uh, about this movie, I actually rewatched this a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a real pretty clear memory in my head, and and I didn't know I liked this one for a long time. I was Terminator Two Judgment Day guy, just like I feel like most people. Mm-hmm. And rewatching this, I love this way more. I think this is way more genre, way more mm-hmm. interesting to me. Um, it is a proper sci-fi movie, dude. The opening scene is in a post-apocalyptic wasteland mm-hmm. that is is the set piece for a futuristic battle where they have fucking laser guns, dude. Yes. Like, they're shooting yeah. like laser guns. It's plasma awesome. rifles. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I, know. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. I don't feel yeah. like I, f- I feel like every time I bring that up to some, they're like, wait, what? Cause they remember I'll be back. They remember the nightclub shooting. They remember right. like all of these kind of specific uh, like staples throughout the timeline of the movie. But I think from the beginning I was sold dude. And then seeing that it was only $6.4 million to make, kind of blows my mind because it actually still looks awesome. Now, does yeah. it look as epic and grandiose as a movie today might look? No. It definitely yeah. looks like, you know, uh, held back a bit, but it looks awesome. I mean, it, it ve- it's a very much stylized thing. Um, dude, I, I I actually really love The Terminator. And before I go any further in it, I would like to hand it off to you because I know you've seen this one. You had to have seen oh, yes, The Terminator absolutely. multiple times, I'm sure. Give yeah. me your thoughts on this. Oh yeah, it, it's it's one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made. I'll say it like that. Um, it's and I, I think I think you know comparing it to to Terminator Two, I mean Terminator Two to me is one of the greatest action movies ever made. Uh, you know sci-fi slash action movies, and I mean I I mean it's amazing in so many ways. If if you just put the two of those together, I mean I I think you know you were just talking about how the effects stand up. The Terminator was probably about 10 years ahead of its time, you know, in terms of the effects. Like, of course, today they look pretty terrible. Um, And in the 90s, the mid 90s is when they started playing with computer animation and computer generated effects. And maybe if that had been made in 94, it would have, you know, it would have been something else. But I mean, but if you look at then Terminator 2, that in itself is probably 10 years ahead of its time, too. So. I agree, but I will say this, though, and I'm I'm saying this to see if you agree with me here. I Uh think this looks better than two. 
And we, we can disagree here, but because no. the CG effects that they use in two for like T1, or is it, what is it? T1000? T1000, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and stuff like that, I think looks bad today by today's standards, though it was amazing. Oh my God. Like yeah. if I knew video games would eventually look that good, I, I probably would have just been like, just <laughs> teleport me there. Um, yeah. But yeah, like that, that looks awesome. But this, the reason I like the Terminator more though, is even whenever Arnold Schwarzenegger is clearly wearing like a makeup prosthetic, cause this part of yeah. his face just got blown off. It yeah. still has like that, the same way we talked about horror movies from the eighties where there's like a charm or like, or yeah. like something kind of uh, nostalgic or endearing about the uh -huh. level of skill it took to create these things, like a Tom Savini special effect or things like yeah. that, where, yes, does it look as real as we might think today because of all the advancements? Maybe mm -hmm. not, but I don't think... Yeah. It's it, still, it like, doesn't... shocking, or it's still, like, yeah. it still affects you in a way. And I I love the graphics of the Terminator. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to yeah, kind of no. add that into your point to see if you had anything to comment on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I absolutely do The you know, the, the scene where, you know, he's, he's been injured, right. His, his body has been damaged and he goes back to this hotel room and he pulls his eyeball out. Right. That scene is as cringe inducing as anything, you know, you'll see today. Now the, the reaction shot of it later or the, the money shot maybe later on where you see him with no eye with, you know, the hole and you can see the, you know, his, his, uh, endoskeleton eye underneath that doesn't look quite as good no but but that sequence is as is as feels as realistic as anything that yeah. you know that you'll ever see in anything and yeah and i think the you know the the couple of times where it shows his age you know is it's fine right it, because the rest of the movie is just i mean and and, and look at it like this this isn't just a sci-fi movie this is a this is a horror film you know, the, this is the Terminator is is a a bad guy on, you know, like a Jason Voorhees type bad guy almost even maybe even more because yeah. he's on a higher level where even the cops, right, are just like helpless against him. You know, the, the, the famous scene where he he storms his police station and just mows down everybody is it's just he's like one of the ultimate bad guys. That, so and that's a shocking scene. I didn't remember yeah. that when I watched it like a couple years ago and my yeah. buddy Riley and I watched it. Um, and we were both kind of floored by how much we liked it. You know, it's uh -huh. not like a perfect film to me. Like, it's not a five out of five thing for me personally, but it's way up. To, like, I hold this much higher. And I always uh -huh. thought of it as like a sci-fi action movie only to be kind of more action in the second one. But that you make a valid point. I never really thought of it as a horror movie, uh -huh. but it really yeah. does follow all those beats as well. Yeah, and I think it. I think maybe the maybe the the best parallel I can think of in terms of franchises is Alien. Um, because you know the first one is a horror movie, the second one is an action movie, and then the rest of them just they just decide to do whatever the hell they want, and you yeah. know to varying degrees of success or success, mostly mostly diminishing success. But um, it's you know those those first two are absolute classics, and you know that that stands with both of these with both yeah. of those franchises. But um, yeah, this one is you know of course it made it really cemented Arnold Schwarzenegger as a megastar. Um, in, in terms of of that that science fiction slash action genre, and it it's you know as you said it's it's probably it's probably still the role he's most known for, and um, man it yeah it's it's damn good and and don't discount Michael Biehn either, and man I still to this day want a pair of the shoes he steals at the very beginning of that movie. <laughs> 
those yeah. things are eighties as could be, but I, man, they're, they're Nikes though. But I wanted some of those so bad. Yeah. He, he, um, like another thing to mention is something that Galen Ross said in our talk with her, which was uh-huh. how Linda Hamilton was kind of one of the really early super like yes. pop culture level, strong female leads. And I, I don't think Linda Hamilton gets enough credit for her role in this because although although I think the movie almost transcends performances mm-hmm. in this because I yeah. do think Michael Biehn's good. Uh, did I say that right? I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm like yeah, really yeah, Eddie yeah, about that now. But um, but yeah, like uh, Michael Biehn's good. Uh, Schwarzenegger, of course, is good. Um, Hamilton's good. But it's like the movie itself can almost function whether they are or not. But if mm-hmm. you think about what they were even historically, like we were talking about with Galen, uh, with Linda Hamilton being this strong female lead. I think that's really important because because if you think about it too, Michael Biehn uh, doesn't save her per se. There might be a few moments right. where he helps, but yeah. that motherfucker's usually hurt. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. she's the one like, you know, kind of carrying the weight or like, uh, or confronting kind of the evil. Um, yeah. And so uh, I, I love that um, as well. So I don't know, this, this movie's really great. Again, it, the thing that sells it for me uh, I, I choose this movie not only because of the I think like the special effects are cool even to today even if they don't all of them don't hold up because um, right. even like whenever you see the the cyborg eye or whatever mm-hmm. um, you used a way cooler phrase but whatever the you know the red yeah. eye um, well, yeah it doesn't still look as cool but it's like if you're a fan of practical effects like I am especially from that era it yeah. just looks awesome even though it looks so fake. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and the um, and the endoskeleton at the end too is is I think it's largely stop motion and it it looks you know it's it's not as good as as it could be either for um, sure you know I agree but, you know but again of its time from its time it's fine it's absolutely fine and yeah and and if anything the the terror of it is kind of enhanced I think kind of by that that you know the sort of uh, I don't know amateurish look yeah 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 and I, I would agree and, and remember James Cameron who has now become I mean, has anyone been able to spend more money on a movie? Yeah, I think I mean, he has gotten boy. more money from investors, yeah, uh, more probably yeah. than anyone ever. And yeah. this was his second feature. He did mm-hmm. a Piranha sequel, yeah, and yeah, then he yeah. did the Terminator, and then he did Aliens, and then he uh-huh. went on to do The Abyss, and then Judgment Day. I mean, True Lies, yeah. every movie, Titanic. <laughs> I mean, what yes. in the? I'm like looking at it now, like freaking out right now because it's like. Uh-huh. Then it's Avatar. I mean, he did documentaries and some TV stuff and whatnot. Yeah. But like that is like every movie from this on is a blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah. And so and, yeah, um, and he's getting expensive as hell. Yeah. yeah. And 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 he, like, this is what kickstarted him, and I think he earned it in this. So yeah. So that's my number four is The Terminator yeah. by James Cameron. Joe, why don't we move on? And why don't you give us your number three? Number three. Number three is a Christmas movie, wow. uh, if you want to call it that. Um, uh, again, again, you know, oh, 19, you know, in 1984, <laughs> I was seven years old. Um, so, uh, again, this is this is very much, you know, the my my infancy as far as movie you know movie going goes, uh, watching films and this movie. Um, I believe it was a, actually a summer blockbuster, even though it was it's set at Christmas time, um, and it is it's still a creature feature, and that <laughs> movie is you may have guessed by now directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, Gremlins. When I mentioned yep. it earlier for uh, um, 
with uh, uh, what's her name, Frances Lee McCain, I believe. I hope I said that right, because um, I don't I don't have it sitting in front of me. Um, yeah, so uh, Gremlin stars Zach Galligan, Corey Feldman, Hoyt Axton, and uh, Dick Miller, who I wish I would have gotten to mention uh, from. Uh, he was also in the Terminator, as you just mentioned. I don't know. Maybe I'll mention that again in a few minutes. Um, Phoebe <laughs> Cates. So, so for a lot of people, Phoebe Cates is um, an object of lust from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. For me, it's Gremlins um, because that's where I saw her first. And um, boy, was she adorable. Um, but yeah, so Gremlins is about a, um, a, a teenage boy who whose parents get him a very unusual Christmas present. Um, this is a pet, um, a pet that is a very adorable little furry thing called a mogwai. But there are some kind of unusual rules um, that you have to follow. And the consequences for not following those rules end up being pretty catastrophic. Um, so uh, his, his, little, um, his little pet Gizmo, who is a mogwai, um, the rules are, of course, do you remember the rules, Austin? Yes, I do. Yeah, so you you can't expose them to sunlight. You can't no sunlight. Um, you can't feed yeah. them after midnight. You cannot feed them after midnight. Water, and you, right? And yeah, do not get them wet. Yeah, and uh, he proceeds to break every one of those rules. Being an American teenage boy, and he finds out that um, you know uh, sunlight can kill them. Water makes them multiply, and when you feed them after midnight they morph into these grotesque reptilian monsters that will wreak havoc on your town. Um, maybe, maybe destroy your town. They are not nice. And, uh, yeah, so he, um, he does this by accident. Um, and, uh, and, and through some subterfuge. So he accidentally gets him wet and finds out, you know, that in a, in a really fun little, um, fun and terrifying for a kid kind of sequence where, they kind of jump off. They kind of uh, these these little balls form on his back, and they Ugh. pop off and grow into new mogwai. And uh, and these mogwai are almost always a little more sinister than the innocent gizmo. And um, they then proceed to trick Billy into feeding them after midnight, which causes them to cocoon. And uh, yeah, so lots of just really great stuff that happens in this movie. It, it's uh, it's kind of a fun, chaotic kind of movie once they once the gremlins appear. And um, it's got a great wicked sense of humor and is just so much fun. And the, the one thing this movie does, well, one thing of many that this does, aside from that, that, um, that wit and that sense of humor, is that it, it takes on the giants um, a little bit in that the gremlins toward the end are in a movie theater watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which I always thought was a really funny little, a little twist that most, um, most of the time – in that age, especially of if they're watching a movie, they're not going to watch an actual real movie. They're going to watch, you know, they'll watch something that's just made up. Right. So um, I always thought that was kind of fun for some reason, but um, yeah, so many just fun, iconic lines. Corey Feldman is also in this movie, um, which is, which is pretty fun. And um, man, it's, it just does stuff that is in a lot of ways, a, a kid's dream. You know, you, you screw up everything and unleash hell on on your entire town, and then you got to be this the hero to go take it down, and you know do stuff like break into a um, I think it was a Montgomery Ward or something, and fight <laughs> a chainsaw wielding gremlin. Uh, so um, yeah, so yeah, a movie of its time again, um, a Christmas movie, a fun movie that you can watch today. 
Um, all of these effects, the the creature effects especially, are you know spot on today. Um, I, I don't think. I mean, to me, when I watch this movie, I there's not a moment, even like you know we just talked about the Terminator, where I'm like, oh, that doesn't look real great. The the gremlins all look real. Um, you know, Gizmo as a as a Mogwai almost always is looking pretty real, and um, the the effects there's there's nothing you know there are no major you know gigantic effects other than you know a couple of creature effects but um those those are really good and pretty disgusting in a couple of cases so absolutely yeah Uh, i want to say this though real quick uh you know you mentioned things looking real and i think the key to it though because i think if you look at like uh the mogwai it's not it looks like a furby you know and it has this big you know like snuffleupagus eyes that just like Mm -hmm. bat really cute and yeah. And all of that. Um, and it's, it's, I, I think it's almost, I, I speak for myself, but I think it's almost less that it looks real and more that they're so consistent from beginning yeah. to end that you don't even think about like it right. feels believable because mm-hmm. it's consistent. And I got to give gremlins like so much credit for uh, it's consistently with uh, consistency rather with, with effects. And yeah. um, you know, for over this last Christmas or last Wait, when did we watch this, actually? No, this was in October. Um, before Halloween, my daughter uh, is way too scared to watch horror movies, and I'm going to break her of that eventually, but she's only nine, okay? Yeah. Um, I, I really want to have a segment on here where I have her come up and record reviews of movies for like three minutes yes. just so she can give she can work on her critic, you know? Um, yeah. She's hyped about that. I already brought it up to her once. But anyways, uh, <laughs> but we um, she wants to do Back to the Future, by the way. <laughs> she loves that movie. But anyways, uh, we watched Gremlins, and uh, she actually she was like super scared when it first started because she knew it was a, like a scary movie, quote unquote. And it does follow all the horror tropes, right? You yeah. have like I mean, just all, everyone, um, yeah. especially with like the the school professor or like the teacher, yes. and it it does all the classic like you don't see the Gremlin um, until it's too late, but the camera like follows from the Gremlins. POV, you know what I mean, yeah. and and all of those. Uh-huh. Things. I mean, it's it it really does all the tropes, but in in what I would consider a more contemporary blockbuster way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my daughter, nine years old. You were seven. Do you saw this when it came out? Then, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah so, I, I saw this in the theater. Yeah. So you were seven. My daughter's nine, but she's like terrified of like scary things, and yeah. uh, she was into it. She really she yeah. really liked it. She thought she was like really terrified for uh, Mogwai because he was so cute and cuddly and she yeah. just couldn't bear to think that he would get hurt. Um, <laughs> yes. and whenever the gremlins are torturing him at one point, I forget exactly what they're doing, but they're like torturing him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, she was just like so sad and so mad at these gremlins, you know? Um, yeah. but yeah, yeah, have, it's, it's, great it's, her? it's fun for uh, the whole family is what I was going to say, actually. And, okay. and, and it might yeah. sound funny, but, um, and and yes, they put like a gremlin in the microwave, you know, and explodes yes. like like there's gross stuff in it. But I think it's a really yeah. great gateway horror movie for oh. kids that might be afraid, um, but that you can kind of like sit and work through it with them because that's what we do with my daughter. Is like, oh. I mean, do kids? Does anyone need to watch horror movies? No, but they can be a lot of fun, and you have. Mm-hmm. Like there are, it does get to a level of irrational fear and it's like, let's work through this. Like, this is actually really fun. It's a funny thing. Let's do it. And Mm -hmm. she was like laughing and uh, we had a great time. So I think it's just a really good gateway movie. What were you going to say though? Have we shown her what? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I was going to ask if you had shown her gremlins too. No, I I don't even think I've ever seen gremlins too. You, 
Gremlins Two is is maybe the underrated sequel um, of of any '80s franchise, probably any '90s franchise. It it's not it's a very different movie than this one is. It's it is mu- very much a send up of itself, and it's much more slapsticky sure. and much less horror. But it does some really good stuff. Um, there's a couple of really funny jokes. Um, there's even a, a fourth wall moment involving Hulk Hogan that <laughs> you absolutely need to see. Okay. Um, it is. Um, I I really love Gremlins too. Um, not as much as the first one, but it's um it's it's a very it's a very different movie, but it's very much worth seeing. I think. Yeah. Well, and, um, I think it doesn't get as much credit as it should. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely check it out for the sake of time. If you don't mind, I'm going to move us forward. Yeah, uh, yeah. I only say that because my number one I'm going to talk about too long, and we have way too many honorable mentions that, although we will probably just list them, I think yeah. I have like 13. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is more for like listeners just like to put these movies on your radar in case no one's ever recommended them to you or you've never heard of them. Like I want them to be spoken because uh, like – I need I need to get better at making like letterbox lists that we can say like here are the movies we talked about this episode so people yeah. can check that out. But anyways, um, so moving on to my number three real quick, Gremlins, great choice, um, and you know that's been fun for my whole family. Uh, number three for me is um, Milos Forman's uh, Oscar just uh, complete uh, takeover, which is Amadeus, and um, although I think this is probably a better film. Then my number two, although my number one I will stand by, but my number yep. two, um, I don't like this as much as my number two. And since this is our personal favorite movies of the year, I went ahead sure. and did this. But this would be probably my number two if I was going on a more objective kind of a list. But um, uh, Amadeus is, is wow, like what a bizarre film. It stars uh, F. Murray Abraham, uh, Tom oh. Hulse, Elizabeth Barrage. Uh, Jeffrey Jones. If you don't know Jeffrey Jones by name, he's the dad in Beetlejuice, which is like yeah. he's really fantastic. You just made a funny face. Is that a bad thing? Well, he's I'm no, well, he he's um, a very well known '80s actor. He, you know, you yeah, you mentioned Beetlejuice. He's in Ferris Bueller. Um, Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Yeah. He has had some personal life problems. See, so I don't even know those because I don't even oh, like pay attention to to he, Jeffrey Jones. So please, please enlighten me. I'm, I'm about to ruin. I'm about to ruin a, like a decade's worth of movies for you. He has been popped on more than one occasion with kitty porn, child pornography. Wow, you yeah. heard it first here. No, I'm yeah. oh um, yeah, I'm clearly it, yeah. behind uh, yeah. on yeah. such things. Um, though, yeah, it, it, but. But yeah, Howard the Duck, he was in also. Yeah. Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, and and th- yeah. one of my controversial things is I'm very good at separating art from people's personal life. Yeah. Um, like, I uh, love Roman Polanski movies, but fuck Roman Polanski. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Jeffrey Jones is very much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. It's good that he's mostly a bad guy in the movies he's in. Because, yeah, it, it maybe makes it it maybe makes it easier to, to hate him because, yeah, to know that he's He's as he's apparently yeah, as big a weasel in real life. It certainly adds, so yeah, it certainly adds like a weird dimension now retrospectively to his characters. But I didn't actually know that. I kind of feel uh, I don't know a lot of like random personal life trivia of a lot of people. So I hope that you're going to be able to enlighten me as the show continues <laughs> on random terrible things about people. But um, but no, there's a, a lot of really great actors. But of course, F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulser are kind of the the heralded. Uh, heroes of this movie. The synopsis is very broad. Uh, It's the incredible story of genius musician Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart told in flashback 
by his peer and secret rival, Antonio Salieri, uh, now confer, uh, confined to an insane asylum. And basically, Salieri uh, tells the story of Mozart and basically uh, why he was responsible for Mozart's death, kind of. Uh, and, uh, of course, this is a fictionalized biography of Mozart. It's based on a play of the same name. And funny enough, Tim Curry and then later Mark Hamill played Mozart's role uh, on Broadway, which is a real, really fun thing. Yeah. But anyways, uh, the movie cost $18 million uh, to make, and it was $90 million in the box office, so huge success. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it just it was, a, it yeah. was an Oscar sweep in many ways. It, it, uh, it won approximately 1 million awards, which is, <laughs> which is what I have written on here. Um, it won 35 awards. What's that? Yeah. No, no, I was just, I was just, Joke. <laughs> you get. You, I just got a poor connection thing, so you just dragged on that whole time, which is really oh, awesome. No, I just, I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, I was like, oh, it just won a million awards. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was, it was actually thirty-five awards and gained fourteen additional nominations, eight of which were Academy Awards, and it had several other nominations for Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, Ebert called it one of the riskiest gambles a filmmaker uh, has taken in a long time as of 1984, um, because mm-hmm. it is a pretty gutsy film uh, where Foreman essentially shows his skill um, in not only its cinematography and, and kind of vision that he had, uh, as well as with the cinematographer, but um, its set decoration is incredible. Its costume design is awesome. And its score is um, iconic. I mean, they, they, it's uh I don't even know how to talk about the score because when I watch the movie, that is like a character of its own. It's one of those things where it's so well done and so well integrated into the movie that take that out and the movie immediately suffers um, yes. like two full stars. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, like, I don't know how else to talk about how important it is. But uh, for those that are not uh, familiar with Milos Foreman by name, he was the one that did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Later, he did Hair. The People versus Larry Flint, which is an underrated movie. That movie's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Man on the Moon, which recently you had mm-hmm. uh, the Jim Carrey, the Jim and Andy documentary you can find on uh, Netflix um, is based on the, the movie Man on the Moon. This guy directed all of them and had the deal with Jim Carrey uh, being yeah. possessed by um, uh, Andy Kaufman. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, this movie is, um, th- this was a, like I said, a huge success. Um, it, it, uh, it, I think it does a really good job at marrying humor with, mm-hmm. um, with a, essentially a period piece of drama. Um, so it, the subject matter, if you just look at it on paper, uh, and I'm not talking about like the script, but just the plot on paper, if you were to write out the beats, this is just a, a historical drama about a historical figure, fictionalized mm-hmm. kind of biography. And then yeah. you add the characters in and attached to the characters is humor. And so Mozart is like a really uh, played by Tom Hulse is a ridiculous character. His laugh. I might have to plug in a little sample of his laugh somewhere, Um, but his laugh is just uh, iconic. And uh, like I said, uh, F. Murray Abraham, if you don't know him, he was in Grand Budapest Hotel as as the the older version of of the boy. And uh, he was in Scarface, which is the guy that gets hung by a helicopter. I mean, he, he again, another name. I feel like a lot of people might not uh-huh. draw attention, uh, but they would definitely know him uh, by looking at him. He's a great actor, and he was uh, awarded some awards for this as well. Um, but, uh, Joe, just quickly, you know, what do you think of Amadeus, man? 
I I love Amadeus. Um, I you know I when it I remember um, when this when it was out. Um, I didn't see it in the theater. It was it was probably a little you know it was a little skewed a little older than I would have um, wanted There's to see. There's a lot it. of cleavage. Yeah, yeah, but um, you know, but like the subject matter, you know, was was a little more highbrow than you know the seven year old me would have been into. But but I did watch it. Um, I want to say I watched it when I was a teenager, and I really loved it. But uh, you know, it's it's hard to describe. Like even you know the success of this movie, and and I don't know that it, it spawned this specifically, but within a year or two, the song "Rock Me Amadeus" by Falco was like the biggest song oh, in yeah. America, um, even worldwide, because it was actually uh, I think it was uh, recorded in German, and um, it was a massive. It is a ridiculous song if you ever listen to it. It is a I'll just say it's a terrible, horrible, ridiculous song, but I love it. That's literally like half of the song, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there's an extended version of that song. That's like five, five minutes long or something or five or six minutes, super long. And it has like this whole biography. Now, when I was a kid, it's it scary. I found it scary because it, you know, it, it does this like little mini biography of his life and it goes through and like tells the years and it says the years that he died. And I was like, I was, for some reason it always scared me on that part, but, um, uh, but no, it, it is a great movie and you're right. F Murray Abraham is, is, um, terrific in it. I, I thought, did he win an Oscar for that? I can't remember if he won the Oscar or not. Which one? Um, I'm sorry. For did F Murray Abraham win in win best supporting actor for, for that. Uh, for Amadeus? I, yeah, I believe so. I'm going to double check that, but I'm yeah. pretty sure he won. Um, Hold on one second. It says uh, best actor in a leading role, F. Murray Abraham. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he so he won best actor. Yeah, he won so, best actor, and then yeah. uh, I want to say, yeah, Tom Hulse was uh, up Supporting. for also a leading role. No, no, no. Oh, so wow. they were both uh, the leads, which makes sense oh. when you watch the movie. I mean, te- technically, yeah. I if I had to say one is it's F. Murray Abraham because it's pretty much all from his perspective. Yes. Um, but but the kind of title character essentially mm-hmm. is Tom Hulse's character. But yeah, they were they were both up for it. Um, and, and honestly, I, I think F Murray Abraham deserved it. Uh, if, if oh, you watch it, the yeah. subtlety in his performance, cause for listeners who haven't seen it, like the, the whole, the whole joke with, with, uh, Salieri, which is, uh, Abraham's character oh. is, uh, he is the kind of like courtyard music director person for this, <laughs> like, uh, King or whoever it is. I don't know. Like, yeah. like whoever this like rich, rich ass dude in power is. Um, cause I, again, I haven't seen this in just a little while, so I don't remember the yeah. exact, uh, positions, but anyways, uh, so he's this higher up and Mozart comes in cause they commission him to do this, uh, this opera or whatever, like this whole piece. And, uh, so Abraham, uh, Abraham's character Salieri has to work with him, uh, to make it work. And he's always around and he's kind of, uh, so the whole time he has to act really so happy Mozart's here and he's trying to be so supportive of his, of his boss and, and his, his peers, um, but then you'll get these shots where he's just looking so just with such disdain. And then yeah. like his boss will look at him and he'll just put this very subtle smile. And, and uh, I mean, his performance is so nuanced. Whereas Tom Hulse is mm-hmm. the more over the top, like the yeah. one I think people would probably think about when they think of the movie. So take something like fight club, for example. Yeah. Brad Pitt is the one people probably think of cause he's so quote unquote cool and he's mm-hmm. so like suave and he's always like doing this crazy shit. 
Um, yeah. But Edward Norton is the star there. The dude beats the shit out of himself in a, in a scene. That's awesome. Right. Okay. <laughs> like, yes. like that. He's the performance I think of when I think of that movie. Yeah. But the every yeah. time you see a fight club thing, it's always like Brad Pitt. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so, and this is one of those where I could see Tom Hulse getting a lot of like kind of pop culture praise because he's so crazy, you know? Um, but I think F. Marie Abraham has far more the uh, the deserving role for this award. So anyways, you were saying, I apologize. Yes, yeah, he yeah, did no, win. Well, I mean, he won the leading role. Just kind of building off of that, the, the, the narrative there is that Salieri is is jealous of Mozart, who's the the famous, like the, the wunderkind, you know, uh, maybe maybe the original wunderkind, honestly, and, and literal, you know, being, I believe they're Austrian. Um, and so, yeah, he, he has this reputation of being, you know, he's the young genius, but then Salieri is this more serious musician and Mozart is, is kind of this man child in a lot of ways. Right. And, yeah. and so he's like this clown that comes in and everyone loves him and I'm talented and nobody loves me, you know? So he's got that, that undercurrent of jealousy there. Yeah. And Salieri is, is a representation of everything uh, that has now because of Mozart's existence become antiqua uh, antiquated, yes. you know, like he yeah. is the representation of old mastery and Mozart yeah. is the, uh, the new kid on the block that is bring, right. like blowing people's minds mm -hmm. with what he can actually accomplish. Um, right. Yeah, so I, I can't stress enough how much Amadeus is is fantastic. You should go check it out. My wife actually hasn't seen it, so I told her like, "Dude, we gotta sit down and watch this" because I didn't get a chance to rewatch it before this. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I strongly recommend it. Really fun. Uh, Milos Forman. Uh, someone should just go down his filmography. He has mm -hmm. also had a few stinkers, I think, but oh, sure. uh, but his, his his great films outweigh uh, mm -hmm. his not. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't uh, seen Amadeus, go check it out. I'm going to go Absolutely. and move on to number two, Joe. Why don't you Absolutely. give me your number two, buddy? My number two, as I said, maybe maybe my one B um, is one we've talked about. Uh, that's James Cameron's The Terminator. That's what I thought. I think I know what yeah. your number one is, but I'm going to wait. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So. So yeah, um, the 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 bit I want to add um, that we didn't talk about um, is the the scene with with Dick Miller from Gremlins, um, who plays the, um, the 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 man behind the counter at the the gun shop that yeah um, the the Terminator goes to early in the film, and you know and and you know he's he's just buying all these guns and he just starts listing off these guns he wants to buy, and you know and and this was you know when I made that joke to you about the plasma rifle is that he. He asks him for a, a phase plasma rifle, and and uh, the the guy just looks at him and goes, "Hey, just what you see here, man." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, we don't have any laser guns in our gun shop. Sorry. And then, of course, he, um, you know, he's he's ill fated, and he becomes uh, one of the first victims of the Terminator, one of the well post Paxton Company, um, as he, you know, he obviously doesn't have money to pay for the guns he's trying to buy. So he just merely loads the shotgun and blows the guy away, walks out with a bag full of guns. So, yeah, uh, this yeah. movie is so, actually uh, super violent too. I mean, yeah. like, I mean, you would, I think you would expect that thinking of the Terminator had one not seen it or haven't seen it in a long time. Those uh -huh. aren't necessarily the scenes you might think of, but that scene where he uh -huh. starts blowing up the police station that you uh -huh. mentioned is really violent. Um, the yeah. nightclub scene is really violent. Like these are, uh -huh. Uh, like this is some some of the old hyper violence here, the ultra yeah, violence, yeah. as uh, Alex would say in a Clockwork Orange. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, in that in that scene that I just mentioned with with uh, where he encounters the punks when he first comes in and he, you know he's naked. I mean, 
he punches into the guy and like, you know, he pulled, when he pulls his fist out, like it's, it's gruesome, you know, it's, his yeah. fist is covered in blood, you know, and, and it's just, it's pretty bad. So yeah, the, the, the violence is very graphic in this film too. So um, it, it's, which it's, it's pretty tough in the second one as well. Um, but I, I would even, I would almost venture to say it may be toned down in the second one, just, just the touch. Um, there, there's still a couple of, there's still the, the, uh, the, the metal spike through the eye, yeah. you know, uh, the, from the foster parents and things like that. But for the most part, it's, you know, it, it's a little more accessible to, a, a you know, a, a more, I don't want to say a family oriented necessarily, but, um, you know, it, it's it's much more mainstream, so the, yeah. the violence maybe just a touch toned down. Yeah, I, I want to say one thing about this, then I have a question for you to finish this one up. Sure. Um, so, you know, I I am I've said this many times, uh, but I think Judgment Day, the second one, is is a prime example mm-hmm. of like when I was growing up. I think T one thousand was like so cool, like everyone did, <clears throat> and um, but like the CG doesn't age as much and I don't get as much of a visceral reaction with the spike through the eye or things like that than I do with the punch in the punk's gut or uh-huh. like blowing that gunshot dude away, which is like yep. super violent. Um, and so I, I, I tend to, I think that's why I like the first Terminator more because I really can kind of just like full blown get into it and I'm not distracted by certain things. Do you have a favorite between the two? I, it's, it's really hard. Yeah, it's, it is it is to me like choosing between Alien and Aliens, which are both – they're very different. Um, they're both, if not masterpieces, they're as close to masterpieces you can get um, without giving it that designation. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it, man, it's really cl- – I might say T2 by just, just a hair – but, um, but you do know you're wrong, right? I mean, I can't. If somebody's like, I love Terminator so much more. I was like, I can't. Yeah, I can't even argue that. I, would, I would, no. you know, if but it's it, it's it's by just to me just the absolute narrowest of you know of of margins. But and uh, you know, and I have to fully admit the second one is is made it's made so much it's so much better because the first one is so good correct yeah and and i agree with you i will say this about t2 even though that's not the movie we're talking about but it is way more polished and and it doesn't get rid of the grittiness or visceral nature of 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 it but i mean it's just everything they did in the first one they were able to do better in the second one i agree with that in terms of maybe again i might have issues with some of the effects but uh and like the, the storytelling and stuff is is really really on point um, yeah. And I love I love the flip of Schwarzenegger's Terminator, where he mm-hmm. goes from essentially a villain to uh, you know a co-hero yeah. uh, of sorts. And and I don't know I, I I like the two together. And and I I don't mean to throw any shade at the second one. I really yeah, love no. Judgment Day as well. So yeah. Um, so yeah, that's your number two, Joe, the Terminator. Yeah. Um, my number two is uh, one that any other day could be a number one, any other year rather. Okay. Uh, yeah. And that is Ivan Reitman's Ghostbusters. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, this is uh, now I I I'm all about ruining this one because everyone should have seen this because it only it only cost twenty five to thirty million dollars and it made nearly three hundred million. Yeah. Um, everybody if, like everybody in the world has seen this movie, right? Like every person. Like, yeah, not, yeah. I think every, <laughs> my kids have all seen this movie many many times. Like, there's no excuse for it. no matter what generation you're a part of, you have to have seen this movie. 
If you haven't, then yeah, you or you've heard have... Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters song, yeah. like uh-huh. like every. This is so in pop culture. This is yeah. more than Back to the Future pop culture. You know what I mean? Like like this is really ingrained. And uh, of course, it stars Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Ernie Hudson, Sigourney Weaver, Rick Moranis, Annie Potts, William uh, Atherton. And uh-huh. uh, David Margulies. Did I say that right? I always think that's I, I what think it is. I think that's Margulies. I think David Margulies. Margulies. Uh, yeah, I think he's yeah. related to Juliana in some way. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, are, yeah. I, I always say his name wrong, and then I thought I got it right, and I got it wrong again. So thanks. Anyways, <laughs> um, but we know we know what this movie's about. You know, uh, Murray Ackroyd and Ramis's characters all uh, join together, uh, basically, to start a business um in a firehouse not not initially but eventually in a firehouse driving a hearse around uh and they're gonna they're gonna cleanse the world uh of ghosts and um I, again i'm I, I have a synopsis here but i'm not even gonna read it we don't even need to waste the time because everyone knows what ghostbusters is about because joe who are you gonna call right you know what i mean hey, you're gonna yeah. call the ghostbusters when there are ghosts around um but this was written by dan arcroyd and harold ramus Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ray Parker Jr. did the famous "Who You Gonna Call?" Ghostbusters theme song. Um, Murray is on fire here. I mean, I, I honestly don't know if there is a uh, at, at least classic Bill Murray because, as you know, like toward the end of the '90s and into the 2000s, his mm-hmm. kind of like typecast switched, where he went from like this Bill Murray to like lost in translation, Bill Murray, you know, yeah. <laughs> or like yeah. Wes Anderson, Bill Murray, like, you know what right. I mean? Like it's, he's a little different. Absolutely. Um, but with this classic Bill Murray, I can't think of a movie where there is a better representation of his humor, nor mm-hmm. a better writing for a character like Vinkman or mm-hmm. more perfect delivery by someone. I just hit my uh, desk. But anyways, um, <laughs> but like, I don't think anyone could more perfectly deliver lines. There are lines that are so fluidly delivered that I laugh at them. And then I forget uh-huh. they exist. Like I was in this band and our EP, I joined the band after they put this record out, but they had a four song EP record called my girlfriend sleeps four feet above the sheets. And I had, I had no idea that was a Ghostbusters reference. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was in the band and I didn't know it for like three months or something because like until I watched it again with our guitarist who was like, he still is. He's one of my best friends, but uh, the he, he, Ghostbusters is one of his favorite movies. And so like we sat down and watched it. I was like, oh shit, this, that comes from this. Like, because yeah. that humor is, but I've laughed at it every time huh? because it's yeah. so subtle and it's so good. And so mm-hmm. the, the thing about this, I burped. Anyway, <laughs> um, I think this movie is is perfect. I see a lot of people kind of yeah. like praise it and give it a, like a four out of five type rating. This is like a five out of five movie to me. I think it's perfect yeah. uh-huh. uh, because it does what I think movies should do. Yeah, It makes a film first and then mm-hmm. the humor decides it is comedy. So what I mean by that is it carries the weight of a serious film structurally. So if you were to break this down, much like we did um, with what was it? Uh, well, actually, much like it would be with uh, most of my choices up to this point. But yeah. we were talking about one where I talked about this. Um, and uh, basically, if you break it down on paper, just like just like the, the brush strokes, the plot, mm-hmm. Ghostbusters could be a very serious horror movie. I mean, they're, yeah. like they take the structure and the story very seriously, and they mm-hmm. write like a good ghost movie, right? And then yeah. what happens is the humor is specifically attached to the characters. 
So the movie itself is less funny than Vinkman is funny, or Aykroyd and Ra- uh, Harold Ramis together is funny, or yes. uh, like it. I, I f- when I watch it, I feel like <clears throat> the movie is less telling me to laugh more than the characters are just funny in a very serious thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I love like that is I my big kind of thing is make the movie first, make a good movie first, mm-hmm. and then if you want it to be comedy, attach humor to a character and a a lot of Woody Allen stuff is uh similar in that way as well where a lot of the humor comes from the characters specifically as opposed to some like a lot of more contemporary humor or like the remake of Ghostbusters where the entire purpose of the movie are the jokes and the gimmicks and the movie itself suffers because there isn't enough structure there it is pure entertainment I think Ghostbusters is a great film I think it's a Mm -hmm. great comedy and I am very proud to have it at my number two. Uh, yeah. Do we need to talk about this yet, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's just do it like this. Let's just do it like this. Ghostbusters is my number one. I knew it. So, yeah, let's just let's just so we can just you know have the, the discussion out like that. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was going to yeah, do. I, I I have yeah I disagree with nothing that you said. Um, yeah, nothing at all. So, um, but the, the the here's the thing about this movie. There's a scene in Ghostbusters where the guys get blowjobs from ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk about this. Like, we, we need to talk about this. That's so uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> this needs to be a discussion that we have. It, and it's, it's kind of unclear whether it's a dream or whether it really happens. Um, but, if you, but if you recall, there's a scene right there, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. Montage where they're, they're all laying in their bunks there and, and these ghosts, these beautiful ghosts are like floating above them. And like they're, they're, you know, their belts come undone and they're un- unbuttoned. And then they're all like rolling around, you know, and then it's like, what the hell is going on here? But it's, it's such a throwaway moment that you yeah. almost don't, you know, you don't see it. But now having said that, um, I just wanted to mention that. I just felt like it needed to be said. Um, <laughs> having said that, I saw this movie in the theater when I was seven years old <laughs> And yeah, and it it is still one of just one of the quintessential blockbusters ever. And you're completely right that it's it's a it's a movie that it's easy to see to miss the um, the plot of it. And what to me what drives the what drives kind of the the depth of the movie. Um, oddly, this is very odd. So don't you know? I'm so understand. I understand this is odd to say, but the video game is what kind of drives the plot to me, uh, which drives home the plot, I should say. Um, if you, you know, if, if you go back and play this most recent video game that came out, I don't know, about 10 years ago, maybe, um, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd wrote it, and it very much piggybacks off of the plot of the, the movie. And they, they don't get real deep in, into the mythology in the film itself, but in the game, they go into much more depth. And you go back and you hear about Shandor and, you know, the, the background of, of the people who lived in the building that, you know, as you're watching this movie, you're so f- focused on laughing. And, you know, Bill Murray is flirting with Sigourney Weaver and, you know, look at these giant nerds and their awesome proton packs and stuff and the Slimer guy. And, <laughs> and, and you miss this, this story about the paranormal goings on in this building um, from whatever it was 100 years ago or whatever. And and they definitely they build on it and and if you go back and just play through that game you you're like oh yeah that's from that's right from the original movie here's another thing from the you know from the movie 
and it, it builds on that so much. That's it, it, really is a, a terrific kind of companion to it. Um, now, having said that, the movie itself um, is hilarious. Um, you're, yeah, you're right about the, you know, the, um, the plot and, you know, how it, how the comedy complements it and uh, accentuates kind of the quality of the movie rather than being the, the dominant part of it. Um, but, you know, look, look at some of the, just some of the moments, like it's, it's clear these guys have no idea what they're really doing. You know, they're, they're working off of theories and a lot of this stuff happens by accident. It's like Egon knows what he's doing, right? Nobody else knows what they're doing. Yeah. And, and stuff happens that, you know, they, they almost just blunder into all of this stuff. And it's, it's hilarious that, you know, this, a lot of the city thinks that they're complete shysters. And, um, and at one point, um, I think Bill Murray even says we are frauds, you know, um, that may have been the second one, but, um, at one point they say it, but then they, you know, actually have to do something and they realize, you know, it's kind of like they realize, Hey, Egon really knows what he's doing here. Yeah. <laughs> So um, it's it's terrific. Um, I actually have right now. I'm looking at um, my copy of the Ghostbusters soundtrack album. This is on vinyl. I have it framed. It is signed by Ernie Hudson. Nice. Um, so this this came this came from my mom's house from my childhood. Um, I had this album, and um, I did an interview with him. Um, and he was at a um, um, uh, one of the horror like a horror convention. Um, and, um, I actually paid for the autograph. I asked him to sign it. If someone asked you, if you're a God, you say yes, but he signed it. Who are you going to call? Which is, which is kind of one of my great autograph disappointments of my life, but what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got, you know, a good 15 minutes of, of discussion out of him. Um, it, you know, I got to talk to him and I got to see him engaged with Tony Todd and to see the two of them just sitting there, just, you know, bullshitting each other. And it was a thing of beauty. So, um, it's a, it's a great, um, it's a great memory for me. Um, of again, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, last thing I want to say, <clears throat> I remember going to the state fair with my dad, uh, in the summer of 84. And one of the games had as a prize, the a ghost from ghostbusters. So it was just like just like the ghost from the logo, right? The you know the, with the the circle slash, but it wasn't. It was just like a stuffed ghost. And I, it was like I wanted that suddenly more than anything. And my dad won it for me, and I had that thing for years and years. So, um, and and I and I want to say I had a shirt I think that said "Back off, man! I'm a scientist." So <laughs> like Ghostbusters was was it in you know in '84 as far as pop culture goes. Um, and yeah, it is, is absolutely a favorite of mine. It's my it's your number two, my number one. Yeah. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. And and just to clarify, because uh, we are slightly different in age, I was born the year after this in 1985. Uh, okay. So I saw all of these later. I actually saw uh, the ghost. Like I probably saw Ghostbusters two more yeah. because one, it was on TV more. But I saw it at a drive-in. Now I would have been uh -huh. like I think two years old or something when that came. When did that come out? Eighty-seven, I think. Eighty-nine. Eighty-nine. Okay, no, yeah. this then I did see it when I when it came in theaters. Uh -huh. It was at the drive-in in Muncie, uh -huh. um, and I remember loving that so much. And then going back after I got into film, um, and all of these that I'm mentioning today, every single one of them I saw post two thousand three, and that's where my love really truly began. 
for a lot of these. Yes. Um, of course, I liked Ghostbusters prior to that, but um, mm-hmm. I appreciate it so much more. Same with the Terminator. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are movies I saw as a kid, but mm-hmm. pale in and, comparison to my experiences later in life. Yeah. I, you know, I do want to say one more thing there, uh, just as a fun aside, and, and you may not know this, um, that Ghostbusters, uh, I believe was a subject of lawsuits and things because there was a, I believe there was a live action yeah. TV show in the seventies. And, and then there was a cartoon also, um, that was titled Ghostbusters and it, like there was an, an ape was one of them. They were paranormal investigators, um, but there was like there was a gorilla like is one of them. Um, and I believe that was in the show as well. I never really watched the show, but the cartoon I watched pretty frequently um, because um, around that came out. That was a filmation cartoon. And then um, right around the same time that came out again, the um, they came out with the real Ghostbusters, which is, you know, based on, you know, the, the film. So there's, you know, Vinkman and Vinkman stance and Spengler are the, the primary with, and then um, I don't remember if Winston was a regular on the, I think he was in the cartoon also, but yeah, I can't, I remember Slimer was like their yeah. buddy in that. I love that yes. cartoon. Now see, that was yeah. my ghostbusters growing up uh-huh. prior yeah. to my getting into film was, uh, was the cartoon. And, and you are correct. And, and I did know about that. Uh, the ghostbusters, uh, the the Ghostbusters three words was the live action children's sitcom. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, that the, yes, and they did they struggled with that. Yeah, 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 and and um and another just our tri- last trivia, the um the guy who voiced Venkman in the real Ghostbusters cartoon I believe was also the voice of Garfield in the Garfield and Friends cartoon, and then of course Bill Murray voiced Garfield in the the films. So <laughs> there's a there's a fun little bit of circular casting <laughs> yeah um yeah the ghostbusters is or the ghostbusters just ghostbusters man all one word that's how it works there's a show called uh oh what's the netflix show uh like how they were made or what are um yeah the yeah movies the, of, the uh, movies that made us I the think. movies that made us thank you yeah. yeah they do one on ghostbusters which is uh-huh. um i think that's true uh, but there's yeah. a lot of awesome trivia that I don't want to get into right now. But yeah. just stuff about like Dan Aykroyd's dad being like a leading paranormal uh, like researcher yeah. <laughs> and stuff, uh-huh. which which led to him wanting to write this. And it was going to be a very different movie until Ramis came in and helped and right. the studio. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool if you have if you have Netflix and have not seen the movies that made us go check out the Ghostbusters yeah. episode. If you love this and, movie, and um, watch the toys that made us too. By all means, that oh yeah. Like Companion, They're, those are both terrific. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of those are awesome. So that that is my number two and Joe's number one. I was certain that was it. I I thought that was going to be it. Um, but our number ones, I feel like, could not be more different. Uh, okay. Because uh, and I, I'm going to try to keep this short, but I have a lot to say here. <laughs> um, but it is Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas, starring Harry Dean Stanton, uh, Nastasia Nastasia Kinski. Dean Stockwell and Aurora uh, Clement. And um, it is uh, basically about a man who wanders out in the desert not knowing who he is. And his brother finds him and helps to pull his memory back of the life that he led before he began his wandering uh, and walked out on his family and uh, disappeared for years. And and Harry Dean Stanton plays this Travis character who essentially uh, left his family to wander the earth, uh, to use a quote from Jules in Pulp Fiction. Um, but the budget was $1.8 million. Box office was $2.2 million. So, you know, uh, barely a success, not nothing huge at the time. 
But if you look this up pretty much anywhere, this is um, highly, highly praised. Uh, like, you know, I think Rotten Tomatoes, not that I care, but it's like 93% or something. Letterboxd, it's all five, like four, four and a half fives. You know, <laughs> it's just like one of those random, like completely uh, off balance ones uh, where it's just all to the right. Uh, and, um, you know, I admittedly saw this very recently and it kind of blew my mind. I know I've known about it for years. I had never seen a Vim Vendors movie. Um, and for anybody who wants to look up Vim Vendors, uh, it is Wim Wenders. That's what it looks like, but I believe it's pronounced Vim Vendors. Um, and I'm actually going to look up, uh, Vim Vendors here because, um, you know, he was a part of the, uh, basically the German new wave and, uh, a lot of, uh, Winder's movies are are uh, breathtakingly beautiful. One thing that that German New Wave movies had, you can even just go, go to Google Images, type in German New Wave, and go to Google Images. I'm actually going to do that right now just to make sure I'm not misleading you. Um, but <clears throat> if you look up the German New Wave and go to Images, um, there are a lot of just like striking images. I'm looking at them now. They're not as great as I expected. <laughs> Um, uh, I was hoping maybe, maybe cinema, maybe German new wave cinema will work. I'm actually like looking this up real time. Um, but anyways, there are a few really good ones. The point is, I don't know if there is a more beautiful film in the eighties. I'm trying to think of one Paris, Texas. Um, now Joe, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you have not seen Paris, Texas, but can you correct me if I'm wrong? You're muted right now. <laughs> I have I have not seen it um, in its entirety. I have seen pieces of it, um, uh, mostly like in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure, sure. Okay, so, so I have very limited a very limited memory of it. Um, it was years ago. Um, I I obviously am very aware of it as you know as one of the um, the great movies of the eighties um, that I haven't seen. Um, a, a more you know I I've been a very much a blockbuster aficionado and some of the the more um the more arty entries uh some of them are like this one i've not seen um or have only seen it in pieces i do recall gorgeous cinematography of of desert scapes and things um but that's that's kind of the extent of my my memory of it yeah um you're not wrong with the, the gorgeous cinematography I, i'm i'm looking up the cinematographer's name right now but um mm -hmm. But uh, he, I, dude, first off, it's written by Sam Shepard, which we know uh, as an actor a lot, but he did a lot of writing, especially for the stage. Uh, Sam Shepard wrote it. Vim Vendors directed it. German New Wave. Uh, Robbie Mueller, or Mueller, maybe, might be his name, is a cinematographer. Okay. And I didn't really remember, I didn't really, uh, actually, no, he did a lot of really kick-ass shit. <laughs> <laughs> I looked through his thing, but then like the very like the notable ones at the top is like actually all of those are badass. He did Breaking the Waves, which is a Lars von Trier movie. Paris, uh -huh. Texas. He did uh, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. He did Alex Cox's Repo Man, which is actually going to be one of my honorable mentions, which came out yeah. in 1984. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he did. It looks like he did several Jim Jarmusch movies um, and stuff like that. But uh, this dude, Vim Vendors, he accomplished Vim Vendors' vision. And uh, I, I don't know if I've seen a movie that more beautifully juxtaposes different color palettes. Like, yeah. he'll do something where, like, the background of the sky will be, like, this sunset, like, red, like, very bold red that, like, fades into blue with a sunset. But somehow yeah. the light on him is green. 
and it's just like like super bizarre lighting but it's honestly some of the most beautiful i have ever seen in a movie and criterion collection put this out which is how i saw it on the criterion channel and criterion collection put this out so the remaster is makes the movie look as good as any movie today um But let me tell you why I hold this above movies like Ghostbusters or Amadeus or any of those. And it's because this is the kind of film. And and Joe, you and I text a little bit where you talked about you're like the blockbuster aficionado. And what kind of like is my bread and butter is more of the the movies that I can kind of analyze. The movies that have more uh, substance and are not just entertainment. Not to say you don't like those and vice versa. But I love like our balance there, right? So yeah. Um, this is the kind of movie that broadens my cinematic spectrum. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like to look at one's film journey, yours, mine, anyone else's as a spectrum. And when you start, it's a very narrow spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you haven't seen enough to kind of uh, to uh, have broadened that horizon, so to speak. So you have this very narrow spectrum. Now, as you see more movies, they will affect you differently. And somewhere along the line, that spectrum will grow. And you start to understand what affects you, what you appreciate, what entertains you, and all of those are different things. So imagine a spectrum, okay, that goes from zero to 100, all right? And let's just say, Joe, when you started, your spectrum only went from zero to 57 because of what you could see, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, at that moment, 57 is your top number. That's your 100, right? Yeah. But say you watch some deeply moving film, like for me, something like Dancer in the Dark or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I could name a million movies. But your spectrum then grows to 65, right? Mm-hmm. Zero to 65. And then you see another one. It grows to 70. And once, once you get to 100, right, mm-hmm. once you kind of broaden and you've seen so many movies, that movie that moved you at 57 is not yeah. as effective anymore. Now, it doesn't right. mean that you don't like it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you don't like it anymore because if it entertains right. you, cool, but it may not affect you as much or you might not appreciate it as much. Hence why I'm afraid to go revisit the rock and dumb and dumber because <laughs> those were like 100 at my 23. Okay. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so now that I've like built up this wide array of uh, cinematic experiences, those movies I fear just won't, I might be entertained by them still to some extent, uh, to varying degrees, but uh, they, they, I, I guarantee they're not going to affect me and I won't appreciate them nearly as much as I did prior uh, whenever my spectrum was so narrow. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean you can't like the movies, but it's different. And right. Um, yeah. And that's okay. So, so, so uh, as you watch more of the movies on the spectrum and that grows, I feel like, you know, uh, you know, this is why it's important for cinephiles, I think, um, to go out of their way to see classic films by people like Bergman, Kurosawa, Cassavetes, Fellini, Hitchcock, Tarkovsky, Lynch, and even people like John Ford, whom I don't like. I, I don't I, I mean, I like the searchers. I appreciate the searchers, um, yeah. but I don't like John Ford movies. They don't uh-huh. entertain me hardly at all, right. but I appreciate them. I think John Ford is an auteur. I think he is a cinema master, right? But it's yeah. just it's just in terms of entertainment alone, he's far from it. But he still kind of blows my mind in certain areas because I can mm-hmm. appreciate the art behind it. And so, uh, like, Vin Vendors is on that list. He's one of those guys uh, that I have grown to really appreciate. And it's a guy that I would love to do a movie marathon because I still haven't even seen enough of his movies. I've read more about him than I've seen 
Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I would love to do a movie marathon for us sometime. But anyway, yeah. so so you have the spectrum, right? So then right. another thing is, and I'm going to get on a bit of a tangent. But I'm going to come back here. So, and this is like good insight into me as a human, <laughs> as a cinephile. All right. So my friend that I mentioned earlier with Ghostbusters, he was an old bandmate, one of my best friends. His name's Jason. And uh, I, I helped him along with his movie journey. Okay. Uh, prior uh, to living with him uh, back in like whenever I was writing for the film app originally back in 2014 and 15. Yeah. I lived with him at the time. Prior to that, I was showing him movies and I showed him gateway movies. Right. And what I consider gateway movies are those movies that when all you've seen are The Rock and Dumb and Dumber, what's a movie I can show you that will get you a little bit further and more open and a little yeah. and then another gateway and then another one until you can get to like Bergman, <laughs> you know, maybe right, not even yeah. there. But you know what I mean? Like a Kurosawa samurai movie or something. And so for him, I remember three distinctly. I showed him Old Boy. Dancer in the Dark, and Elephant, Gus Van Zandt's Elephant. And those kind of blew his mind because he'd never seen anything like those three movies ever. Old Boy got him where he could watch foreign movies and read subtitles because he was like me at that time. Uh, Elephant was so unique to him. And it is a pretty, I like that movie. But Dancer in the Dark is the one that, we talked about that for hours. That's one of my favorite movies. But gateway films are so important because sometimes you know you may not understand the depth of some of these films that I've mentioned um, and so if you can start working your way through some of these gateways or working your way backwards through some people's filmographies to kind of understand how they started where they are even if they're um, like huge and doing different movies now maybe like why are these movies so revered early in their career and sometimes it helps to have these gateway movies and the last mm-hmm. thing I want to mention with that also is is I don't I don't look at film as entertain entertainment medium exclusively, um, and not only is it art, but it can make you feel things and or bring yep. valuable unique experiences. So, for mm-hmm. example, I don't find a lot of Ingmar Bergman's films entertaining. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't, but they like blow me away for other reasons, uh, whether they be historical, like historically relevant, or um, I can like m- use my brain and kind of like work through them and pull out these things. I love cerebral things. So uh, like Bergman provides me experiences I can't get anywhere else because they make my brain work and yes. uh, they keep me on my toes and I find skills, uh, the skill um, of an auteur like Bergman so breathtaking and and even in a movie like Persona, uh, though mesmerizingly beautiful, is slow as fuck, all right? <laughs> like almost to a fault, that movie. But I don't care because of what it offers me. And I love that movie because it does such unique work. And so I, I bring all of this up. I'm coming back to Paris, Texas here. So, you know, uh, a movie that offers only entertainment, okay, is uh, a movie that dares to be obsolete, in the future, uh, uh, save for maybe nostalgia, because yeah. with time, one what one considers entertaining can change and likely will. And so a movie that is solely focused and relies on the audience to find it entertaining, it's a dangerous, a dangerous place. Take a movie like The Hangover, for example. We may disagree on this. I don't find The Hangover entertaining at all. Okay, <laughs> that's just not a movie for me. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, nothing against anybody who likes it. Totally fair game. Go for it. It's just not for me. Um, mm-hmm. Now, now I can acknowledge that, uh, like, people think it's the funniest shit ever, and I can also acknowledge that it essentially inspired a whole new direction of com- contemporary comedy. But what it did was the antithesis, in my view, of Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. It's where it made, I'm not saying it's the first movie to do this, but it made the humor the front and center and not the film. Yeah. And so 
like what back to Paris, Texas here. Paris, Texas is one of those movies that wasn't just entertaining to me, though it was, that I didn't just appreciate, but that is also an artistic vision. Um, it broadened my spectrum. This was, again, recently. I've seen thousands of movies, much like you have, you know? And this movie then again broadened. Um, I find Paris, Texas to be so incredibly powerful. Uh, it is a film about loss and sacrifice. Uh, it's about Travis, which is Harry Dean Stanton, uh, who has lost everything that he held dear, and he has wandered the desert like a biblical figure. I vote for Job as the big biblical figure, but maybe I'm <laughs> inaccurate. But the point is, you know, he's suffered a lot of loss and loneliness, and he doesn't talk for like the first fucking 20 minutes of the movie, dude. Like, um, he doesn't say a word. Everyone's talking to him, and he's just, like, nodding or just staring at them with these, like, sunken eyes that Heron Dean Stanton, uh, Stanton has. And he has, like, gross neck beard. Like, his beard's all grown out. He's really <laughs> awesome when he finally shaves it to a mustache. He looks really cool. He's wearing, like, a plaid button-up, you know? Uh, like, all-American, totally. Um, but his brother, Walt, um, played by uh, Dean Stockwell, who, if anybody... Did you ever watch um, uh, Quantum Leap? Yeah, on occasion, yeah. Dude, yeah. I fucking loved Quantum Leap. That was like my yeah. shit when I was growing up. But he has yeah. Ziggy. He's like the hologram guy that helps yeah. Uh, yeah. Scott Bakula. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, uh, but uh, that's his brother, Walt. And he finds Travis and and Walt, his wife, and Travis's son, Hunter, kind of breathe new life into Travis. And uh, so he starts talking again. And Travis's son, Hunter, has been living, unbeknownst to Travis, uh, with Walt and his wife, Anne. And uh, so he kind of like starts to rekindle this relationship with his son. This is all in like the first half of the movie, dude. This isn't even a whole thing. (laughs) But like uh, there's this really powerful scene I want to bring up, though. He wants to pick his son up at school and walk him home. You know, Um, he wants to try to rekindle something with his son because he clearly loves him. And uh, whenever you first meet Travis, he fr- he ha- doesn't remember anything in his life, really. He's experienced such loss, and he's been so traumatized that he won't even talk, let alone remember remembering his brother and sister-in-law visiting him and things back, you know, prior to all of this. Uh, he'd been wandering for like four years. So uh, whenever he sees his son again, it like breathes new life, and he wants to pick him up from school and walk him home. And his son's too embarrassed because all the kids drive away. They don't walk away. Like that makes him poor or something, you know. I don't, I don't exactly right. know, but he has this aversion to wanting to walk. So whenever Travis shows up, his son hitches a ride with one of his friends and takes off. So then Travis is left sadly walking back. And of course, it hurts his feelings, but he understands. Hey, I abandoned my kid, and he's going to be dealing with this. And of course, his his brother and sister in law are struggling a lot more with Hunter's response to Travis. But Travis understands. So the second time he does. This is like a pivotal scene for me. The second time he does, he asks uh, his brother's housekeeper, what does a dad look like? What does a father look like? And she, you know, she's trying to help him. She doesn't quite understand his question. And he's looking through magazines, trying to find a, a picture of like a quintessential dad. And he can't. And she oh, helps wow. him like put these clothes on to look like this like rich father. You know what I mean? And Harry yeah. Dean Stanton looks. Anybody knows what Harry Dean Stanton looks like? Right. He looks like a fucking hillbilly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But he looks awesome. He has like this like fedora looking hat and like this three piece kind of suit, and he just looks really ritzy. And he's standing out. And by this point, he's already warmed. Up, Hunter's warmed up to him a bit, and so mm-hmm. uh, Hunter won't cross the road to be with him. But they both start walking on either side of the road, 
It's a quiet scene, and they're walking. And at one point, Harry Dean Stanton walks behind a van, and whenever he comes out the other side, he's walking backwards. So his son starts walking backwards, and his son starts mimicking him and all of this. And the most beautiful part is once they've walked most of the way back home, silently on either side of the street, Harry Dean Stanton doesn't call him to come over. Harry Dean Stanton crosses the street to meet him. Oh, it nice. actually makes me emotional thinking about it, but it's it's yeah, a very yeah. impactful scene where yeah. Harry Dean Stanton's character, who has experienced such loss, um, sacrifices any pride. He shows such empathy in that scene. He shows um, just, uh, I mean, really kind of what a father should be, in my view. And he yeah. never hides anything from his son. I mean, he's always very open uh, for the most part, you know, but he's he's very honest, very open to the point that makes his brother and sister-in-law very uncomfortable, you know. Um, oh, okay. But basically, the movie turns into him trying to find Hunter's mother because he mm-hmm. hasn't seen her in four years. He walked out on him, and uh, he's trying to find her. Um, I, I want to remind myself real quick what her name is in the movie. It's driving me crazy. Uh, Jane. Uh, he wants oh. to find Jane. And there is a powerful scene. I'm not going to explain why or the context because... Joe, I really want you to see it. I want to know if this is as powerful yeah. for you as well as any listeners, because I don't expect everyone to have seen this. Yeah. Although it's not like a rare movie, but it's like you said, like a lot of people have heard of it, but a lot of people haven't seen it. I was one up until recently. But when he meets Jane, the correspondence between them is riveting to me. I mean, like edge of my seat, I'm like sitting there like my hands just like grasped together, you know? <laughs> Like I'm just yeah, like, yeah. like, and it's it's a very slow, quiet scene, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But I'm like riveted by this, like, because yeah. just because of the buildup, and man, the, at first the score was kind of off-putting to me, but uh, it fits so per- like by the end I was like I want more, <laughs> like it just I, did yeah. its job. Cinematography mm-hmm. is fucking perfect. The performances are perfect. Vin Vendors is a like his vision is perfect. Uh, this is just one of those movies that I kind of had not an aversion, but I was prepared to not like it as much as other people because it was just so hyped throughout my film, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, education, you know, like people talking this movie up. It's like someone having not seen the Godfather and going into that, like, man, this has been hyped hard, dude, you know, and then hopefully they love it. As much as yeah, everyone else, because yeah. it's so great. But, you know, like, uh, or Citizen Kane might be another one. Like, you hype that movie up, and someone might have a harder time kind of uh, dealing with that movie uh, for so, a variety of reasons. But uh, this one, it might be the same. I find this just, like, this is my bread and butter. This is, <laughs> think of a movie that really moves Austin in all the ways I mentioned, entertainment, um, something that deeply affects me as well as that I would consider, like, art. Right. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that encapsulates all of those. And I've talked too long about it now, but that is my number one. <laughs> Paris, Texas, directed by Vim Vendors. Uh, if we end up doing that thing uh, mm-hmm. where you name a movie and I name a movie, which I thought about yeah. this today and I hadn't told you about it until now on air. Yeah. But we have to do that. I think it would be so great. 
Because then no, we'd both be able to see stuff we haven't seen and talk to the other person who loves it. So absolutely, actually, yeah. I might even make you watch something shitty just so we can talk about it. <laughs> um, no doubt, yeah. But anyways, they're gonna make you watch something shitty. So. Oh, I know you. De- yeah, you're gonna be like uh, fucking hillbilly yeah. elegy or whatever that movie's called. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, no, no, let's not be crazy. Not um, <laughs> let's real quickly because we we are uh, we actually are pretty close to the time I had anticipated. We're a little over okay. though. Um, and I want to, I want to move, uh, I want to move on to some honorable mentions. I have a yeah. fucking well, well, they are coming to get you. So you I know. know I, it's fucking annoying. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. If you hear, we live right <laughs> off of a semi busy road. So occasionally we get uh-huh. some, uh, some ruckus there, but uh, let's do some honorable mentions. Uh, we mm-hmm. won't go into these nearly as much because quite frankly, we'll probably talk about these at some point. There are a couple yeah. I want to kind of touch on, but I'm pretty sure a lot of ours will over overlap mm-hmm. if I had to guess. Yeah. Um, I do want to say this before we do that. There were a few movies I hadn't seen that I felt like it was important for me to just say like these weren't contenders. Uh-huh. Um, 2010, the year we make uh, we make contact, uh-huh. uh, which is the 2001 uh, sequel, um, yeah. which wasn't like kind of as big a deal. But when I start reading into it, people kind of love this movie and being yeah. having a tattoo of 2001, like I kind of uh-huh. feel like I should see it. Dreamscape yeah. looks fucking awesome dude and i've never seen Uh, that i love lars von trier and he did the uh, element of crime that year yeah let let me i'll just throw a couple um a couple names out and then i'll i'll go down some of this list um just quickly um johnny dangerously was one i wanted to put on my list really bad um amy heckerling directed that which i didn't know until i just looked it up today Hmm. um she did um uh clueless also yeah. Um, but Johnny Dangerously is a, is a gangster comedy. Michael Keaton and Joe Piscopo um, has some great lines. Um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, you know, a freaking Indiana Jones movie uh, came out in 84. Yep. Um, also, how about this? Friday the 13th, the final chapter and a Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so, I mean, those are two, you know, for me is a horror fan, two of my favorites. Uh, the Never Ending Story, um, which is another great one. Um, Splash. A Ron Howard film, Police Academy, um, which we need to have a Police Academy show sometime. Um, I would actually I, love I, that because those are the yeah. types of comedies I would like to go back and watch, like Police Academy, Revenge uh-huh. of the Nerds, like like some of those really yep. random uh, uh-huh. that are like big comedies of that time. I, I'm not yeah. a huge fan of contemporary comedy, though I, there are a lot that I love, but I miss yeah. that kind of comedy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So and, I'm with you, dude. And the Police Academy series has, I mean, it's it's all goofy, dumb comedy, but it it has a very like it's it, the type of comedy. It goes from, you know, the first one, you know, the commandant getting, you know, getting a blowy while he's giving a speech, to um, the fourth one is almost a like it's almost a family comedy by the fourth one almost, and then they end up making a Police Academy cartoon at one point too. So yeah, like they clearly move that toward you know a more family-friendly audience i love most of those movies anyway um but anyway yeah so you know i mentioned splash i mentioned i mentioned beverly hills cop for crying out loud um i mean just you think about the the 10 movies we just discussed and all of those um but let me let me just run down as quick as i can um you know you mentioned those two which are certainly two big big time filmmakers you mean yeah yeah, yeah, and we mentioned you know several of them um, who were very notable here. Um, here's some people whose movies didn't make either of our lists. Uh, that you know they had films out in 1984. Arthur Hiller, Louis Malle, 
John Hughes, Walter Hill, Francis Ford Coppola, David Lynch, David Lean, John Carpenter, Alan Parker, Gary Marshall, Wolfgang Peterson, Robert Zemeckis. I included Leonard Nimoy for Star Trek Three. You know, he's a name. <laughs> uh, the movies, you know, uh, Blake Edwards, Peter Hyams, Roland Joffe, Wes Craven, Ron Howard, Brian De Palma. Jonathan Demme had two films. Um, he had a documentary and a feature. I don't, I didn't note yep. the titles of either, but uh, Ken Russell, Sidney Lumet. Um, I already said Arthur Hiller. I put his name twice. Rob Reiner had this is Spinal Tap. Carl Reiner had a film. Uh, the Abrams Zucker Zuckers um, had a top secret out that year. Paul Newman, Sergio Leone, Norman Jewison, John Sayles, John Cassavetes, Clint Eastwood, John Milius, and of course, Steven Spielberg um, for uh, Indiana Jones and Barry Levinson. That's, I believe, uh, 38, I think. I think if I count those 38 directors. Are the Cohen brothers on there? Um, I did not put the Cohen brothers on there. What was that? Blow? Was that Blood Simple Blood in 84? Blood Simple, yeah. Which is. It wasn't on the list either. So there's another one. But yeah, my point is like, I mean, there's. Did you say John Hughes? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, it's crazy, dude. John Carpenter, which I think you also mentioned. I mean, uh, I'm actually really surprised that A Nightmare on Elm Street wasn't on your list. I intentionally left it off. It probably would have uh-huh. been my number five. Yeah, um, I, I did too. Um, Maybe for reasons that might become clear. Um, I'm not sure what order we're going to play that in, but I I left it off intentionally also. Yeah. I left it off because we just did our top 15 and it was on both of our yeah. lists. Yes. So um, so it probably would beat out mm-hmm. Broadway Danny Rose the way I, I don't know. <sighs> <laughs> I, I don't know. This is just a rough year, dude. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. kind of beeline down some of my titles. You yeah. named several of the filmmakers. Um, mm-hmm. Honorable mentions: uh, Michael Radford's 1984, uh, starring mm-hmm. John Hurt. Uh, the Coen Brothers' yep. Blood Simple, Gremlins, which you had. Uh, yep. John Cassavetes Love Streams, which yep. I watched last or today before we started recording for the first time. I'd never seen it. That was the one I texted you, and I was like, can I have two number fives? Can I have a tie? Because <laughs> right. uh, I wanted love streams, but by the end, I, I liked Broadway Danny Rose better. But uh, I'm a huge Cassavetes fan, and that is a really great and very powerful movie for me. Uh, I love mm-hmm. Barry Levinson's The Natural. Uh, we watched yeah. that in school. Actually, um, our friend uh, Sam Watermeyer, who uh, has the uh, left me a voicemail for this episode, um, and his choice was A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, and, that, um, there you go. That's why I left it off. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, anyways, like we took the same genres class together. Um, uh-huh. I was like, a, I was probably a senior or something and he was uh, younger than me, but we were in the class and we watched the natural and I'm sure he thinks it was cool. I'm sure. But uh, a lot of the class didn't like it. And I was like yeah. a big fan. I, I, I actually, I, it's like just like a populist movie, you know. <laughs> like it's just, right. it's just like a kind of like this feel good, but there's like this almost supernatural aspect to it. it has Robert Redford mm-hmm. in it. I'm a big fan, yeah. I, but I like a lot of Barry Levinson stuff. I, I really like him as a filmmaker. Um, mm-hmm. Hayao Miyazaki's uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, a great animated mm-hmm. Miyazaki movie. Uh, yeah. One of his yeah, I didn't include Miyazaki either. There's another name for that list. Yeah. Yep, yep. One of those uh, early Miyazakis in the '80s. Of course, he was doing stuff into the '70s, but um, this is like a, a, one of the first like real big ones. The Neverending Story, which you mentioned, Nightmare on Elm Street, Once Upon a Time in America, which is the Leone movie. You you uh, kind of yep. hinted at. Uh, uh-huh. I haven't seen that in so long. Is a big reason why I haven't. I didn't even consider it. Uh, yeah. Repo Man. Have you seen that? Alex Cox's Repo Man. That, that might be the biggest blind spot I have for for this year. This in Paris, Texas, I think, 
will be the two. Yeah, for whatever reason, I've never gotten to see Repo Man. Yeah, I, I have the Criterion copy, and once the mm-hmm. pandemic's over, I'm going to make you watch it. It's yeah, really fun, absolutely. and it's like mm-hmm. a big influence from what I understand yeah. of uh, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, um, uh-huh. which is the trunk in Repo Man. Uh, if I remember that correctly, I feel like I read that somewhere, but anyways, Repo Man has Emilio Estevez in it. It's really fun. There's a a bunch of people, but, um, 16 Candles, Starman, which I watched for the first time yesterday. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. movie rules, dude. Yeah. It's a John Carpenter movie. And, uh, I was actually blown away by how good that movie looks. Like it's really good. And it really gets down to some very human, uh, themes and values. Um, I mean, I, I like any movie. Well, not true. Very, very untrue statement. A lot of movies that tackle someone coming from the outside, not understanding the culture or the values of a particular people, and then illuminating how either ridiculous or challenging some of these traditions people blindly follow. Um, I I, I love when people do that well, I should say. I almost always like a movie when it's done well and it's really thoughtful. And yeah. though Starman, I don't know if it's as thoughtful as I'd want it to be. It still hits that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah and uh, uh, Jeff Bridges plays uh, an alien, basically, and who uh, transforms into uh, the female protagonist, Dead Lover. And you've seen this, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the, I saw it in the theater. Yeah. I saw that's that in right. the theater. Before. Yeah. The scene where he uh, becomes a human and it starts with him as like a weird, like mutated baby. And then he like elongates on screen. Like they do these special effects <laughs> where it's like becoming from a baby to a human. Yeah. Uh, my wife walked in, she goes, Oh, that's freaky. What are you watching? And I'm like, it's star man. It's awesome. Like the special effects are great, but one, I cannot believe I thought this was going to be on your list is this uh-huh. is spinal tap. I really thought that one for some reason, I uh-huh. felt like you were going to be a bigger fan. Um, not that you're yeah. not, but mm-hmm. I, I I love Rob Reiner. Um, I absolutely love Rob Reiner. I've interviewed him twice. I've met him twice. Um, he like he we're good buddies, <laughs> and uh, and I and I always tell people his run um, from from I think Spinal Tap is the first film of that run. Maybe it goes there's a couple before it, but from there to the mid '90s. Um, with uh, like the American president, I said, you take that stretch of movies and you put that against anybody in the history of filmmaking. Like I defy you to find a better, just a better run of what 12 years or so he had, he had, this is final tap. He had uh stand by me, the princess bride. Um, I just left one, a big one out. Um, um, when Harry met Sally, when Harry met Sally, that's what it was in my head and it fell out. Yeah. When Harry met Sally, a few good men, the American president, um, and there's one or two more again that I'm missing, but I mean, you just, I mean, those are all major iconic films of the decade. And I, I always tell I'm like, those, that is just a great run. Now, you know, the past 15 or 20 years has not been as kind to him, but <laughs> and that I'll take that, uh, you know, I'll take that against almost just about anybody. Well, as far I mean, as anybody, anybody who's been around that long, he's like Woody Allen. Like Woody Allen had yeah. a good stretch of like 77 to 92. I'll stand by those. Yeah. With the exception of maybe two, maybe three movies, but he did a movie every year, if not two yeah. um, in a year. And Woody Allen had a spectacular mm-hmm. run. Now it was not as profitable or popular as Rob Reiner's. Right. But I would say yeah. in terms of like success, they were there yeah. now. Rob Reiner, of course, much more successful in terms of box office and pop culture. Yes. But yeah, he had a great run, man. You're spot on. 
Um, now we're just rambling about about these things. But anyways, <laughs> um, the, the whole point of this thing is 1984 is a great year in movies. Yeah. And um, yeah, one one day we'll have to do some other great years. I'll have a reason and we'll we'll tear them up. Um, but uh, again, the reason why we did this is because next week I uh, it is scheduled for me to interview, uh, have an extended conversation rather with oh. Jeff Rhoda, the filmmaker behind 18 to party. We had a little 15 minute um, kind of uh, uh, interview Joe and I with him a couple weeks mm-hmm. back. But uh, we're going to do an extended thing because I feel like I have a lot more. I can talk about with this guy. We're going to talk a little bit more about him as a person and, and how he got into filmmaking, but uh, his movie takes place in 1984. And so I thought it'd be fun to relive uh, mm-hmm. kind of what such a great year. And we kind of came up with this off the top of our heads pretty quick and it ended up being pretty successful. I mean, what a great topic for us to tackle. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love this. Uh, I love this kind of format and this, uh, this is an idea. It's, it's fun to do. And oh, let me, let me just give you the, the coda, so to speak for Rob Reiner. Um, Misery is the film I left out that he did um, during that stretch from 84 to 95, let's say. Yep. Yep. And, and this is Spinal Tap was his first. So yep. he pretty much just it's it's uh, all or nothing all the way up through yep. what a few good men or something. Yeah. The order. This is Spinal Tap. The sure thing, which uh, um, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men. Then he did North, which is a major famous bomb. The American president, Ghosts of Mississippi in 1996. Yeah. yeah maybe, yeah. Um, but but just, I guess, and I guess to answer your question, why it wasn't on my list, I've seen this as Spinal Tap once, and I loved it, but, you know, I, I loved it and I laughed, but I was just like, it's it was, it was maybe like, maybe it would be like nine or ten, you know, on my list. Yeah. For that yeah. year. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it, I mean, I love it too, but it also kickstarted all those Christopher Guest uh, yes. mockumentaries as well right Absolutely. um and that a lot of people love like best in show mm-hmm. um and what's oh i, I have waiting to think of guffman thank you enough. waiting for i, I knew yeah. guffman but i couldn't remember the beginning part but yeah so um and there are more but it, it's really great so anyways this this pretty much concludes our top five favorite films of 1984 uh mm-hmm. joe do you have anything to say before we get going no yeah if if uh hey if you disagree with us that uh number one that 84 is among the best years of all time for film um, you know, make your, make your case, you know, come see us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, you can find us through the film apps for sure. You can find me there. Um, and yeah, come, come tell us why, if you disagree, or if you do agree, if you think our movies are off base, um, tell us why the natural or splash or police Academy or, you know, whatever else is, you know, much better than what we chose. Um, by all means, come let us know. We want to know. We want to hear from you. Absolutely. And again, medium cool pod anywhere you can get on Twitter and at Austin Glidden. That is mm-hmm. at G L I D D E N. Hit me up. I don't care. Yeah. Joe, like you said, film yap. He's around. Yeah. You know, we yeah. are we are happy to hear your feedback. And um, you can even email us, mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And I still think uh, you can also throw this in too. I still think 2007 is a better year. Uh-huh. And I think 2007 is the last great year of film. Joe, we need to talk about that year sometime. I'm going to find a reason to do it. All right. I don't, yeah, we'll do don't want to wait two years for 15-year anniversary, so I oh, might have to that. cheat somehow <laughs> and, and get us to 2007 because um, that's that's a banger for me. But uh, anyways, yeah. Uh, yeah, 84 is a great year. So that's going to wrap yeah. us up. Joe, you feel good yeah. about it? Yeah. 
Uh, let, let me drop my um, my Twitter at Joshier9. Uh, that's S-H-E-A-R-E-R. Um, uh, like uh, Austin said, also um, at the Film Yap. Um, yeah, um, but, you know, I I just got on here and, uh, hey, Survivor Series is about to start for, uh, for us wrestling fans. <laughs> hey, Undertaker's last match, supposedly. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, we might have to go check that out now. Anyways, yeah. hey, thank you guys for listening. And Joe, as always, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Good night. Well, 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 our top five favorite movies of 1984 complete. We did it. Um, Yeah, that was really fun. Uh, Joe and I always have a blast, and we hope that you guys uh, joined us in the blast having. Um, Like Joe said, please hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com backslash medium cool pod. Search medium cool pod on Instagram. You'll find us. And uh, at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter, you can also at Austin Glidden or at Joe Shearer Nine, and uh, hit us up. It'd be great. We'd love to talk with you. Shoot us a message, tweet at us. Uh, you know, hit us up on Instagram, whatever it is. Uh, but most importantly, have fun listening to this and be a part of it. Like we would love to get your feedback, good or bad. Um, I mean, I'm still just gonna do what I want, but I, what I want. <laughs> <laughs> what I want is to hear your input. And so, um, yeah, we would love to, we would love to kind of like tailor that to our listeners. I can't wait for these movie marathons. I can't wait for next week when I talk to Jeff Rhoda. I can't wait for my buddy Jake to come in and start talking about Cassavetes. There's a whole lot coming up. Please, please, please go subscribe on iTunes podcast or, uh, Apple podcasts on Google podcasts. What just happened to my voice? Did you hear that? <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to end on that. Why don't you just... Uh... <laughs> okay, goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.